forgot who we can't trust Screaming at the top of our lives On the ground where we feel safe Screaming at the ones we love we forgot who we can't trust Screaming at the top of our lives On the ground where we feel safe Do we feel safe? 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 interesting how many things we forfeit for the sake of feeling safe and uh, the feeling of safety uh, comes to mind when we are trying to uh, push back on fear and I think I've mentioned this before a few times there's not a lot of things that I'm scared of I'm really not scared of anything and if you look into yourself, I mean, okay, we all have like natural fears of something, like maybe spiders, for example. That's something I don't like. Only because they're icky. Actually, there's a backstory to why I don't like bugs. So I was never really terrified of bugs until I was on a farm, one of my aunt's farms when I was a kid. And she had rabbits like in like a, a place, um, in, in like a place. It's like a shed thing. And I remember I wanted to go play with the rabbits, but there were like a few doors to like little sheds anyway. So I went into um, a shed that didn't have the bunnies in it. And so all my cousins and everything were running around, typical hot summer. And I got into a shed that closed behind me, the wooden door closed behind me and it latched in, like the little latch went on. And so I sat in there and I remember just sitting there and there were so many bugs crawling all over me that I just froze because they were I remember one was like in my nostril I was a kid so um you know that terrifies me because they're tiny and they get into every orifice you have um until my my um my my aunt was screaming out to my grandma where where's where's the <laughs> where is she and um, they went looking for me. Like I couldn't even scream out or anything. I remember that, it was terrifying. I was very, very young. Um, and so, you know, those things, they, they, it's, it's scary. Like if I'm in a room and there's a bug, I'll be scared, but then I'll kill it. You know, you overcome that because you're just like, whatever. You just freak out with little things. I think little things, kind of like elephants, they don't like mice because they're tiny and they could get into crevices, right? Um, so, so spider is to human is his mouse is to elephant, I guess. But anyway, so they do terrify us. Things that are different terrify us. But that doesn't mean we're actually scared of them. To the point that we would lay down any arms we have, any voice we have in that sense. So think about it. In all honesty, I don't think any of you can really, really say in the pit of your gut, that you're actually scared of anything, scared of anything. Uh, you know, that's, that's basically it. You're not, especially if you have faith. See, 
I've been talking about that for a while. And yesterday we did have movie night. I was delayed because I went to like a, a, a Greek church function thingamajiggy. It was actually with the islanders of an island called Carpathos. It was really awesome. And there was good food and um, there was Greek dancing. It was, it was a great break because all day I was working and then I had to go and return things. And then I needed to go get scissors and then wrapping paper and then sausages. Yeah. A friend of mine makes sausages. So I thought, what better way to give gifts of food and sausages <laughs> to people? So I guess Millie is getting some sausages for Christmas um, that my friend made. Mm. So I did all that uh, yesterday and I sat down to watch a movie with you guys on Twitch. And I had seen that movie um, while I was uh, in D.C. I saw it come up when I was searching to save things on my stuff for movie nights. And I remember reading the plot and I was like, oh, that sounds super eerie familiar. But I watched it with all of, uh, you know, everyone on Twitch yesterday. And what struck me was is that that movie was filmed in 2014 kind of like a b movie right but it wasn't that bad because the plot was so realistic so a hundred percent into what we're seeing right now that you couldn't stop looking at it yeah some acting was bad but it was really good and you know what did you guys see it was the christian broadcast network business network whatever that was on that film. The movie's called Rumors of War. And it was talking about someone talking about how people became enslaved. It talked about false flag events. It talked about being microchipped. It talked about how people and leaders thought people were too stupid to know what's good for them. This is exactly where we are at right now and it's available on amazon prime i actually really enjoyed it i might be watching it again um it was one of those things you know and i really enjoyed watching it with everyone because everything that was being said in their portions like everything you could relate to anyone that has been following what is going on uh you can relate to and the bottom line of that film which i don't think people understand is that I've, I've I've said this a few times then when when, when uh, putting together predictive algorithms and using humans you can't you can't keep them as an absolute because they're very you can't you have to treat the node as a complete variable and you can only guesstimate per se and right down to it, it's because of we will, but more so because of faith. A lot of people do things in faith rather than in what their higher processes of their mind uh, scream that they should do. Uh, they scream, your mind may say, don't, 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 don't take the leap. And you're like, no, I'm going to take it. It'll be fine. And, you know, sometimes that works out. Sometimes it doesn't. It all depends. Is it delusion or is it faith? Right. But here's where it's at. You have to understand, you can't be fearful of tomorrow and say that you have faith. That's pretty much it. You cannot be worried about what happens tomorrow and then say you have faith. And I, I wanted to share with you, there was a, 
is from a long, long time ago. There was a um, there was a protest um, in the summer uh, in in Greece, and I had seen this guy from the camera above. Um, he's a homeless guy. I'm gonna try to get this on the screen for you guys. I've shown it to you before, and I retweeted it. So this guy, his name is Dimitri, goes by Mito, which means Mitaras is like the equivalent to Jimbo, right? Jim, Jimbo, right? Like whatever. And he's walking around with a sign around his neck telling people, don't, don't succumb to the Euro, right? That was the whole protest. If we enter Europe, we're done as a nation is what he was protesting out on the street. Well, it says here, they look like giants because we're on our knees. That is so important for people to understand that. The only giants in the United States of America are we the people, no one else. And so this image for me, so many years, this is like over two decades old, right? Was everything, right? This was everything because this embodies exactly Exactly what fear means. Fear is not having faith in yourself and that and in, in, and in good, in general, in good. That is what fear does. You lack faith. You act, ask questions like, oh, this is so terrible. This is going to be horrible for us. It's like, why? Why are you accepting that answer? Why are you sitting there in fear? Many of you might say, well, no, I'm just uh, being realistic. I'm just seeing the way things are. Well, how do you know? Not everything is what it seems. The only way you wake up, the only way you jolt into action is when you're at the precipice. And think, how many times in history, in great wars, in great situations, and even in movies during the climax, how many times is it that it was the whistle, the 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 crispy clean uh how would you say um monk godly top brass person that led the way it wasn't was never that it was always those that traveled in the shadows that spoke shadow that had parcel tongue those were the ones that arose think of every story of you know, overcoming something. It's always the guy they never expect. Always the person that was always dirty. Always the person that had no business being anywhere. It's the outsiders. It's those that nobody expects. And they don't necessarily have to be. They can be partial tongue speakers and they can dance. But it doesn't mean that they don't rise to the call when it's needed. Because I've said this again, and I'll say it again and again. Redemption is the biggest weapon in the face of evil. And redemption is what you are seeing right now. All of you listening at this moment need to understand there is nothing we as a nation can overcome. We are the OGs of rebels. <laughs> this has happened before. And uh, the discussions that we are having now have happened before. So I found this cute little video uh, 
talking about uh, the American Civil War, and it's an oversimplified uh, video. And I want to share this with you so you can hear it. And those of you that are going to see it, you're going to see that it's like really bad drawings, but it's actually quite sweet uh, because it cuts to the point and has conversations in a very oversimplified manner that um, may assist in making sense. History applied to today makes complete sense. Okay, Mrs. Lincoln, this is it. One last push and we're done. Nine months and four days ago, my father brought forth upon my mother himself and gave to her a child conceived in a shack in Kentucky and dedicated to the proposition that I will drink num-nums from a bottle and do little poo-poos in my pants for the next two to three years. Now, what does it babies do again? Oh, yeah. I am not touching that. Abraham Lincoln grew up with his relatively poor family in Kentucky, eventually moving to Indiana, and finally, Illinois. He read a lot of books, worked a lot of jobs, wrote some questionable poetry, and finally entered the law profession. Despite being self-taught, he turned out to be a pretty clever and astute lawyer. In one case, a guy claimed he witnessed a murder at night, and Lincoln was like, how could you have seen anything in the dark? There was a bright full moon. A what? A bright full moon. Can you say that again, please? There was a bright full moon. A dim half moon? No, a bright full moon. That's funny, because according to this almanac, there was a dim half moon that night, which makes you a liar. Uh, well, well I got a bright full moon for y'all right here. Now that's what I call a rebuttal. Lincoln and his cheekbones weren't only interested in law, however. He also dabbled in the world of politics, serving as a legislator in both local and national assemblies. And what a time it was. Not even a hundred years after the Founding Fathers wrote, all men are created equal. Politicians were already asking, yeah, but what does that mean exactly? It means all men. Yeah, but what does that mean exactly? And not just that. States' rights versus the federal government. What are the executive powers of the president? Is cereal a soup? The Founding Fathers left some of these questions perhaps a little too open to interpretation. And the biggest question of them all was slavery, an ugly mark on what should have been a revolutionary new nation based on liberty and democracy. Thomas Jefferson had written a condemnation of slavery in the Declaration of Independence, but out of fear of losing Southern state support, it was removed. Hey guys, do you think leaving this a little vague will create any unforeseen problems in the future? Cannonball! And those unforeseen problems were now beginning to rear their ugly heads. As the nation developed, the North and the South developed along two very different lines, and two very different cultural identities emerged. Northern cities began rapidly industrializing, while the Southern climate allowed for large plantations of labor-intensive crops. As a result, one half of the country didn't rely on slaves, while the other half had become economically dependent on them. In 1793, Eli Whitney's cotton gin caused the slave trade in the South to explode. While in the North, a growing abolitionist movement was taking root, a general mistrust began to develop between the North and the South. Okay, I just wanted to stop it one there. Okay, so... That was how it happened. Now, what was the uh, idea here? The North was industrializing things. <laughs> you saw they were churning out burgers. I love New York and Tom Hanks, which is so bizarre. Uh, the video is actually quite cute. But um, what I wanted you to see is, is 
the facts. The North was not reliant on manual labor, but the South was, okay? Two, two different kind of domains. Let's pay attention to this. Now, slavery was cheaper because you have them live there, you feed them, you treat them like, you know, property, and they churn out more crops and you have more trade. Whereas up north, you needed people to be smart, uh, get into engineering, industrialize things, and create different jobs where people all participate. There was more capitalism in that sense. Not to say that the South uh, wasn't filled with capitalists, right? It was just cheaper. Now, as people grew, remember back in those days, you can hang people in the square and shoot them by firing squad while people ate popcorn. So man has evolved but I'm trying to explain to you what the differences were, how they saw trade and advancements in the world. So think of it this way. We are at the same position right now, not just as a nation, but this is global, okay? We are at the same position right now. We want that good balance of using technology, because at the time, you know, having, uh, you know, factories was technology, right? We want that good balance of people and manufacturing, right? And then using technology. But we want a good balance uh, that helps us rather than defeats us. Whereas the other camp wants us to serve the creation, which is the planet, supposedly, this is their message, right? and rely heavily on the support of that. They're finding it that it's not really necessary to have so many people anymore. Remember that. They've said that too, that we should regulate population, that we don't need so many people, that we want to move into other things. Listen to what they're telling you and how they're advancing things. We're at the same place only, you know, 100 years later per se. Okay, it's just a little over 100 years. We're in the same place. It's just a little bit different because technology has evolved. Now, this is a revolution against a global ideology, but this is a civil war amongst our nation. Those that want to adapt the global ideology and those that do not, that is the difference. That is what I'm trying to tell you. We have two wars that we're fighting right now the globalist part and our internal struggle as a nation to agree with that globalist part. So uh, understand <laughs> that this is indeed a civil war within our borders and a revolution on a global scale. This is why the world is watching. And what happens in our nation seals the fate of all others that have succumbed and yielded their rights and their ability to speak. Because remember, we were an experiment based on faith. You know, why did they run away from England? Because the Church of England suffocated them. Why did they run away? No freedom. They weren't allowed to practice freely. So they said, you know what? Forget this. We're out of here. Understand faith and trust in God and in your creator, not the creation. But having faith and seeing that the creator is above all and having faith in that is a terrifying thing for people who want control. Because if they cannot control how you feel and respond, then 
that's a problem. This is why faith is so under attack. Again, because human beings can take that leap off the bridge, right? If they actually believe they will not die. And that belief is faith. So when you do things that are out of the ordinary, that your higher processes of your brain scream, no, don't do it, you know, but you do it, it's because you have faith, faith in God, faith in something bigger than you. And that is the most terrifying tool human beings have because with faith comes compassion and with compassion <laughs> comes peace and peace doesn't make money and peace doesn't provide control. As Northerners felt the South were hell-bent on expanding slavery and fear spread throughout the South that the North wanted to take their slaves away. In 1819, there were 11 free states and 11 slave states. A perfect balance. A happy medium. A harmonious relationship. Hey guys, nice to meet you. I'm Missouri, and I would like to become the 23rd state. Hey buddy, welcome to the nation. We'll be happy to accept you as a free state. Oh no, you don't. You're trying to get one over on us. Missouri's going to be a slave state. Okay, listen, why don't we just ask Missouri what it wants to be, and we slave state. Well, then, uh, allow me to introduce to you the newest, freshest state on the scene, Maine. Hey, you can't do that, and you can't have any more slave states above this line. What? The issue of slavery is solved, and it will never come up again. A few years later, it came up again. You see, as America expanded westward, each new state or territory that was added threatened to upend the delicate balance between the slave and free states. If one faction managed to outnumber the other, it could gain an easy majority and force its own ideals on the opposing side, leaving a huge portion of the population feeling spiteful and oppressed. For a while, compromises kicked the can down the road and kept the volatile balance in check as new free and slave states were roughly added in pairs. But then one loudmouth state just had to barge in and ruin everything as usual. The addition of Texas saw the United States enter into a war with Mexico, which they won, gaining a huge amount of land out west and creating even more problems. Hey guys, nice to meet you. I'm California and I would like to become the 31st state. Hey buddy, welcome to the nation. We'll be happy to accept you as a southern slave state. Oh no, you don't. You're trying to get one over on us. California is going to be a free state. Okay, listen. Why don't we just ask California what it wants to be and we can free state. Well, then, uh, allow me to introduce to you the territories of New Mexico and Utah, able to freely vote for slavery themselves. Hey, you can't do that. And we can enter Northern Territory anytime we want to recapture escaped slaves. What? The issue of slavery is solved and it will never come up again. A few years later, it came up again. In 1854, a Democratic senator from Illinois wanted to build a really cool choo-choo train here and proposed that the territories of Kansas and Nebraska be created open to slavery, even though they were clearly above the Missouri Compromise Line. Obviously, the northern states were like, hell no. But the southern Democrats who controlled Congress at the time were like, well, if you love liberty and democracy so much, then you should let them vote on whether slavery should be legal or not. And so it was. Huge numbers of pro- and anti-slavery settlers rushed to Kansas to sway the vote in their favor. And while they were all there, they began to beat the crap out of each other. One of those settlers was a man named John Brown, a former businessman who failed at just about everything he tried and went arguably insane. He was a radical abolitionist and dedicated much of his life to the Underground Railroad and freeing slaves. One night, in revenge for an earlier raid by pro-slavery forces, he and his sons killed a number of pro-slavery settlers in the territory, helping to kickstart years of violence known as Bleeding Kansas. Kansas and Nebraska both eventually voted in favor of outlawing slavery, 
But from here, the tension began to grow at a rapid pace. In 1852, author Harriet Beecher Stowe penned Uncle Tom's Cabin, a best-selling novel that exposed the terrible cruelty of slavery to the world. Oh, how awful. How morally corrupt a nation must be to allow such things to happen. Your Majesty, what should we do about all the starving children working in the coal mines? Nothing! In 1854, the Republican Party was formed, and Abraham Lincoln emerged as a leading figure. Southern Democrats viewed the new Republican Party with mistrust, believing it to be radical and abolitionist. In 1856, a politician named Charles Sumner gave a speech in Congress, calling out slave-owning Democrats with fiery language. If slavery was a woman, she'd be an ugly one, and the senator from South Carolina would like to boink her. Representative Brooks, do you have a rebuttal? Oh, I have a rebuttal, all right. Yeah, here's a rebuttal for you. Oh, come on. Surely this isn't allowed. Hmm, I don't know. I'll have to consult the rulebook. Hmm, I can't find anything about caning a political opponent, but it says here I'm not allowed to wear women's underwear. Uh-oh. News of the violence on the Senate floor took the nation by storm. Some slave owners sent Representative Brooks new canes to replace his now broken one. And on the floors of Congress, politicians carried weapons in self-defense, which is never a good sign. In 1857, the Supreme Court ruled in the Dred Scott case that all people of African descent, slave or free, could not be citizens and therefore could not sue for their own freedom under any circumstances, undoing years of progress with the strike of a gavel. Now, within all this bitter debate over slavery, there were... So as you see, it's the judges that break uh, the Constitution up, right? It's the judges that are the problem. Wait, it gets better. So... This is how it all started, this whole civil war. It was brewing. Think about it. Undocumented immigrants, giving them whatever they want. Think, think, apply it to the now, and it totally makes sense. There were many nuances. North versus South. Republican versus Democrat. States versus the federal government. But let's strip all of that away. For four million individuals living in America, this wasn't about political intrigue or party alignment. It was about the basic human right to be free. Men, women, and children were stolen from their homelands and brought to the American continent, where for generations they were considered to be property, forced to live in poverty and work from sunrise to sunset. Plantation overseers did whatever they felt was necessary to get the most out of their slaves. Punishments were often barbaric. Families were regularly separated and parents could often only watch as their children were auctioned off, never to be seen again. Thousands of slaves took the treacherous risk of running away, and abolitionists in the North helped many escape via the Underground Railroad as bounty hunters entered the North to chase them down. Leading figures within the abolitionist movement included many significant free black men and women. But it's important to note that for many of the anti-slavery white individuals in the North, opposition to slavery was often an economic issue, not a moral one, as many worried large plantations would take their lands and livelihoods away. Abraham Lincoln knew that slavery was a moral evil, and he regularly spoke out against it in powerful speeches that helped him rise through the ranks of the new Republican Party. Now, let's think about this for a second. So we talk about slaves back in the days where they used to just take them, and they were hard workers. And again, it was economic, not moral. Remember that. It was all about the money, all about the money, all about the money. Yet it was morally unsound, too. Uh, people were more worried about their pockets. Yes? Now... Here we are, where we're slaves once again, but this time to the federal government. And this is a big problem. Just as the South, 
Democrats wanted their slaves and wanted, they were fighting the federal government that was saying, no, you can't have slaves. And the federal government was saying, no, you can't have slaves, not because it was immoral, but because it wasn't economically sound. That's why they were like, okay, you can have half, you know, 11 states and we have 11, we have to have a balance so that the federal government works. You see, now we're slaves. We are the slaves to the federal government. And it's the judges that are making the decisions until a leader arises to wake the people up. Now for this leader, he was trying to shatter the economic basis of these decisions and empower people with morality, right? That's what he did. He lamented at the hypocrisy of a great American nation meant to stand as a shining beacon of freedom while also enslaving 4 million men, women, and children. He most famously declared in 1858 that a house divided against itself cannot stand, that one day slavery in America would end. However, even Lincoln was cautious in his opposition. He didn't want to outlaw it entirely, but simply prevent its expansion so that given enough time, he believed it would naturally die out. Thankfully, history would force his hand. In October 1859, one abolitionist decided he'd try to single-handedly take down slavery by force. Who'd be crazy enough to even attempt such a thing? Ah, it's our good friend, John Brown. He planned to seize arms from an armory in the town of Harper's Ferry, free the slaves there, and continue south, inciting a major slave uprising along the way. A noble cause, a bad plan, and terrible execution. Brown's men took the armory and some hostages, but were quickly surrounded by one Robert E. Lee and his U.S. Marines. Brown was captured, and a couple of months later, he was executed for treason. Northerners sympathized with Brown, but Southerners were like, you see this? They're coming for us. Soon, there'll be a million John Browns. A million John Browns? What on earth are you thinking about? A John Brown farm? Yeah, me too. To make matters worse, new northern free states meant now the southern states really were outnumbered, and they were beginning to feel bitterly spiteful and oppressed. Further fear began to spread in the south when news broke that a relatively unknown figure had just secured the Republican Party nomination for president. Abraham Lincoln, mostly well-liked among anti-slavery northerners, had made some of the most powerfully worded speeches against slavery of any politician at the time. And now, there was a chance that he, and his cheekbones, could become president. For the south, that would be too much. In the 1860 election, Lincoln's name didn't even appear on the ballot in 10 southern states. But much to their horror, when the final results came in, Lincoln had won by an electoral college landslide. Lincoln himself tried to calm their fear. How many times do I have to tell you I'm not going to take away your slaves? Yeah, right, honest Abe. We've had enough of you northerners. We're going to go form our own country. You can't do that. Why not? Well, if if you had won the election, would it be okay for us to leave? Of course not. Well, why not? Because that's not how victim mentality works. Ooh, so the Southern Democrats were always on that victim mentality. As you could see, the way you fix things is exactly what we saw President Trump do, too. He's like, look, I'm not going to just hammer this. I'm not just going to kick all the illegal migrants out. I'm not doing it all in one go. I could pack them all on a plane and say bon voyage and shut the border. I could do that. But instead, I'm going to do that starting now, and those that are here will see if they stay. He tried to negotiate because that's how you try to keep, keep the peace. This is how civil wars brew. So he got in unexpectedly, just like President Trump did. Think about it. Think. Who are the slaves now? It is the control. It is the power. They didn't want any more John Browns. So they made sure 
that they were grooming people the right way. This demoralization that we've been undergoing. History tells you everything you need to know. Many states felt that when they joined the Union, they always withheld the right to leave it whenever they pleased. Many people living in 19th century America often felt more loyalty to their state than to the nation. And now, with the South feeling like it had lost its voice in the federal government, they were out of here. South Carolina was the first to go, and over a period of six months, one by one, 11 slave states officially seceded from the Union, with just four contested border states opting to remain. The seceding states issued a number of official documents justifying their secession. South Carolina proclaimed that it was northern states' hostility to slavery that rendered the federal government illegitimate. Mississippi declared that their position was thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. And in a speech, the Confederate vice president stated that the new Confederate government rested upon what he called the great truth of racial inequality. Revered American generals, such as Robert E. Lee, opted to side with their states over the Union. And with all the chaos, one New York lawyer wrote that rather than a bold eagle, America's national bird should be a debilitated chicken. And hey, I kind of like that. One man, watching the crisis unfold, knew it would be his job to solve it. Lincoln was just about to hop on a train and become the president of the United States of America. Hey man, you're hella ugly. Grow a beard or something to hide that face. Hmm. Good idea. Hmm? Eh, still ugly. With assassination plots already underway, Lincoln had to travel to Washington, D.C. under heavy disguise and protection. All along the way, he received stacks of threatening letters. May the hand of the devil strike you down. You are destroying this country. Damn you, every breath you take. Love from... Grandma? At his inauguration speech, Lincoln once again reiterated that, No, I do not want to take away anyone's slaves. But for Lincoln, he did want to preserve the Union. He declared secession to be nothing but an illegitimate rebellion. In your hands and not in mine, he said, is the momentous issue of civil war. You can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. We are not enemies, but friends. It was clear Lincoln was ready and willing to get freaky and open a can of Scatman John if he had to. Whether he had the support of the people, however, was in question. In the end, it was the Confederates that fired the first shot. As they seceded, the Confederate states began seizing federal U.S. property throughout the South. Off the coast of Charleston, South Carolina, was one such federal property, Fort Sumter, held by a measly, undersupplied U.S. force. The Confederate militia there demanded the fort surrender, a request which was quickly denied. And any remaining hope for a peaceful solution to the secession crisis probably then died when the Confederates did this. The Battle of Fort Sumter is considered to be the beginning of the American Civil War. Many of the Confederates there also considered it to be the end of the American Civil War. They hoped Old Abe would just sigh and say, okay, you win. Unfortunately for them, Lincoln actually said, you're about to get a roundhouse to the face. Lincoln sent out the call for 75,000 volunteers, and men signed up in droves, hopeful for some adventure and good old-fashioned F-U-N. In the new Confederate capital at Richmond, Virginia, Confederate President Jefferson Davis and his cheekbones had also sent out the call for 100,000 men. As ever, both sides hoped for a quick end to the war. Is it over yet? No, Jimmy, it's been one week. Is it over now? No. How about now? If you ask that one more time, I swear I will turn this army around and you'll all have to go back home to your wives and children. But in particular, the South knew the conflict would pose a bit of a challenge. How can we expect to win with a population of only 5 million against 22 million in the North? If you count up 4 million slaves, you'd have 9 million. Great idea! Hand these rifles out to all the... Wait a minute! 
You almost had me there. The problem for Lincoln was that many of his top generals were getting old and were being a bit too cautious. The commanding general was a man named Winfield Scott, a veteran of the Mexican-American War. And by now, he was too fat to even mount a horse. Okay, chaps, we need to come up with a plan. Hit me. We could wait for the Confederates to come and apologize. Maybe we should all sit in a circle and discuss our feelings. Crossing the Delaware into New Jersey worked for me. Those are all terrible ideas. And you, wrong video. Hey, I'm the greatest president in the history of this nation. Yeah, we'll see about that, dingus. Eventually, Lincoln's generals came up with a multi-pronged strategy. First, a blockade would cut off and starve the South of supplies by sea. Secondly, taking control of the Great Mississippi River would sever the South's economic artery while splitting it in two. And finally, a main Union force in the East would move south and take the Confederate capital, ending the war. Bada boom, bada bing. Skirmishes began to break out across the nation, and the Union army in the East began to move south towards Richmond. Everything seemed to be going well until they reached Manassas, where they came upon a large Confederate force. It's almost like they were waiting for us. How did they know? As it turned out, spies in D.C. had sent a coded message to the Confederates warning of the invasion. Did you use NordVPN? What the heck is NordVPN? I'm so glad you asked. Do you use the internet? <gasps> Shameless commercial plug, huh? Okay, so I wanted you guys to understand how this civil war actually began. It was one side thinking their ideas were better than the other sides. And this is how they worked. Remember, Trump came in. Nobody wanted him. Everyone wanted him out. And they were pushing. Look at where we're going. Pay attention to what's happening. The majority of the people are the free states. The majority of the people voted for President Trump. He won. We know he did. The only state he may have lost is maybe New York. And that's, sorry, New York. And that's my hometown too. <laughs> but think about it. Look at what they're doing. They're fighting us. They're, look at what they're doing. Just look at history and look where we are now. Apply it to today you'll understand where we're going and what is really happening. The two sides encountered each other at Manassas and both geared up for the first major battle of the Civil War, the first battle of Bull Run. The Confederates rapidly brought in support by a rail and the two sides were about equal in numbers. However, they were also equally inexperienced. A large number of civilians also rode out by carriage from DC to picnic on the nearby hills and watch the excitement unfold. Nobody seemed to quite understand how destructive this war was going to be. The Union forces pulled a flanking maneuver to hit the Confederates on their left and the two sides fired on each other in rows. Farm families living in the area were forced to flee the fighting, including a man named Wilmer McLean. Hurry up, Martha. There's a war out here. The more you tell me to hurry up, the slower I will go. The Union force saw initial success pushing the Confederates back to Henry Hill. But one as of yet fairly unknown General Thomas Jackson had arrived, and he took a defensive position, standing firm like a stone wall, holding the Union army off, and finally sending them running back to Washington, D.C., with heavy casualties, the sobering reality of war hit both sides hard, and the North, having just lost the first major battle, had to face the serious prospect that they may not actually win this war. President Lincoln, General Jackson whipped us so hard, the Confederates are calling him Stonewall Jackson. Wait, that's why they're calling him that? Not because he looks like he ran face first into a stone wall? Apparently not. Worse yet, the North had also lost the first major battle out West, giving away control of Southwest Missouri. All of this was terrible news for Abraham Lincoln, especially since many of his generals and cabinet already didn't have much respect for him. They felt he was incapable of running a war because he seemed a bit like your friendly old grandpa.
Ah, kind of sounds very familiar, doesn't it, guys? Amos Lee loved a long-winded story and a good pun. I've been so busy, my wife is missing me. But her aim is starting to improve. <laughs> but deep down, few realized he could also be incredibly shrewd. Oh, Abe, you're so funny. Funny how? Funny like I'm a clown? Uh, Abe, I was just... No, no, funny how? Like I'm here to amuse you? During the war, Lincoln committed acts that were viewed by some as impeachable. His administration suppressed the free media from printing articles sympathetic towards the South. Some Southern sympathizers were even arrested without a trial. Lincoln's criticizers began accusing him of being a tyrant. But to quote the man himself, Hey, it's war, baby. What are you going to do? By the end of 1861, with things already looking bad for the North, abolitionists such as Frederick Douglass couldn't believe that the Union Army weren't enlisting black men. He continued to put pressure on Lincoln to make the war about emancipation. Mr. President, it's time to make the war about emancipation. Hmm, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. The feathers are already ruffled. But Lincoln, hanging on to hope for a quick end to the conflict, continued to fight only for the preservation of the Union. It was decided, however, that escaped slaves from the Confederacy could be held as enemy contraband. And many of these men were put to work bolstering the Union's infrastructure and supply lines. Hoping to get things moving, Lincoln made young General George McClellan the new commanding general, and McClellan began to train up his men. He thought a lot of himself, however, and believed he was going to be the nation's great savior. And like many others, he didn't approve of the president's handling of the war. On one occasion, Lincoln went to McClellan's house to meet with him, but McClellan was late returning home. He kept the president waiting, and when he finally got there, he just straight up went to bed. Now that's what I call disrespectful. McClellan talked the talk, but could he walk the walk? No. Like Lincoln's other generals, McClellan was maddeningly cautious. Hey man, could you move south and attack the enemy? What? Are you crazy? What if they have a big scary army down there? They probably do. What? Oh my gosh! McClellan worried that he did not have the numbers he needed to fight effectively. What if they have like 10,000 men? Okay, no problem. We'll get you 20,000 men. Well, what if they have 30,000 men? I'll need 40. Okay, you can have 40. Well, what if they have 50? I'll need 60. Lincoln tried, but it was all in vain. So I just wanted to point out, as this is going through, understand, this is exactly what's happening within our administration right now. Everyone knows best. Everyone that has applied their knowledge and tools in regular warfare and irregular warfare, but outside of the United States, keep that in mind, always knows best. Every single one of them knows best. This is the first term of Abraham Lincoln. He was going through all this. Sound familiar? Yes. We didn't push battles, but we had a lot of legal battles. And at the same time, they were throwing special counsels and he had, you know, people making him wait and not listening to him and treating him like he doesn't know what's best because they know what's best, right? Huh. But how'd that work out for them? Think about it. Think. McClellan would not make a move for the rest of the year. The North's one saving grace for now was a general out west fighting in Kentucky and Tennessee. General Ulysses S. Grant, cool, collected, methodical, and a big fan of whiskey. His chief of staff took it upon himself to keep Grant sober. One officer said that Grant habitually wore an expression as though he were determined to drive his head through a brick wall and was about to do it. And that determination led him to score a number of key victories when others around him were failing. At the Battle of Fort Donaldson, Grant was like, Why does Stonewall Jackson get a cool nickname and I don't? I want a cool nickname. Sir, the Confederates say they're ready to surrender and want to know your terms. No terms, just unconditional surrender. Hey, unconditional surrender Grant. That's a pretty cool nickname, right? Guys, 
right? Later in April 1862, the Confederates launched a sudden attack on Grant's army at Shiloh, but the determined, unconditional surrender Grant threw his lines at the rebels and sent them running. The battle resulted in the heaviest casualties in U.S. history so far. And despite his victory, Grant found himself under fire. You have to get rid of Grant. Why? Didn't he win? Yes, but he just threw his men at the enemy. Isn't that the point? Also, he's a loony drunk. Well, what does he like to drink? I believe whiskey, sir. Then send him more. Lincoln watched. That's what's up. So we have a lot of people that have been outed from the Trump administration just like him. And that is what President Trump should have said. When Linick kicked out all the people in the State Department he appointed and they were talking smack about them, what do they like to drink? Give them more. Oh, he smokes too much pot. Then give him a room with a great filter. Let him smoke pot. They're effective. Oh, nobody likes him. He's too outspoken. Let him speak more. Give him a damn megaphone. That's what's up. But like Abe, he didn't want to ruffle feathers, right? Didn't want to ruffle feathers. Can you see it? This is how it happens. This is all about, I know best. Listen to me, president. You don't know. I've been, I've worked. I have, look at me. I have so many years. I worked within the CIA. I worked at this department and that. I was this. I was an admiral. I was a lieutenant. I was a general. I was anything. This is what he's been surrounded by for four years. People telling him how much more they know than him. And it's like, if you guys knew more than me, you'd be sitting in this fucking chair. Huh? That's the way it is. It's a big room of people that think they know best. And, you know, it's always the guy that dances with the devil. The one that sat in the shadows. And remember, President Trump would be at all those parties while they were drinking. He was watching to remember what they'd forget when they'd get high and drunk. So why wouldn't you trust his, his, his words? Why wouldn't you trust his path? Why would snakes surround him? Because everyone right now at the White House, I think I said this a while back, the one thing that you see is that everybody's worried about their job tomorrow rather than damn, I'm going to fight for my country. Poke my job. I want to fight for my country because that's what's up. As his cabinet did nothing but bicker and his generals did nothing. But then, worst of all, personal tragedy struck. Lincoln's young son, Willie, very much loved by the president, died of typhoid fever at the age of 11. Lincoln was a sensitive man and was heavily affected by the loss. His wife was inconsolable. But one of Lincoln's greatest traits, what made him such a great leader, was in the darkest of times, with composure and determination, he kept moving forward. He knew it was his responsibility to hold himself and his family together. And by doing so, he hoped to hold the nation together. And he had had it with McClellan's inaction. Lincoln decided he was going to take control. In March 1862, Lincoln firmly ordered McClellan to once again move south towards Richmond. McClellan insisted instead they move by sea to the Virginia Peninsula and attack Richmond from the southeast. Yes, said Lincoln. Okay, anything. Lincoln held on to some of McClellan's men to defend D.C. from a nearby Stonewall Jackson wreaking havoc in the Shenandoah Valley, and he sent McClellan south. McClellan landed on the peninsula, and he began to move inland. He came up against a small Confederate army that had dug in at Yorktown. McClellan vastly outnumbered the force, but it's said that Confederate General Magruder deceived McClellan by cleverly maneuvering his smaller force and making McClellan believe he faced a huge army. No, you have way more men than them. Move forward. No. 
McClellan settled in for a month-long siege, giving time for Johnston to move south from Manassas and Magruder time to retreat. When he finally entered the city and found it deserted, he declared it a victory, calling his success brilliant. Then, after meeting some resistance at Williamsburg, McClellan moved to within just 20 miles of Richmond. His armies able to hear the church bells ringing in the enemy capital. You still outnumber them. Go give them hell. No. McClellan once again held back, moving slowly and defensively. And with his army split in two, the Confederates saw an opportunity to strike back. McClellan's advance was halted, and now the Confederates pulled an ace out of their sleeve. General Lee, you're up. Do you think we should evacuate Richmond? No, Mr. President. No need. General Robert E. Lee, one of the most brilliant military commanders of the time, was now in charge. One of his biggest strengths was his ability to read the mind of his enemy, and he knew McClellan was cautious and weak. After moving Stonewall Jackson south to join him, and even though he had a smaller army, Lee hit McClellan in a series of fast-paced, close combat battles that had McClellan spooked. McClellan retreated the Union Army back again and again and again, escaping the peninsula and returning to DC. Lee had defeated McClellan, and the campaign had failed. Well, that was a major success. A success? Tell me exactly what was successful about that. Well, we successfully retreated. You lost. I didn't lose. I merely failed to win. Things just kept looking worse for the North. At least their navy had seen some success, capturing a number of key port cities, notably when they steamrolled past Confederate forts to take New Orleans. And speaking of the navy, both sides had begun using ironclads. So that's pretty cool. But in the East, they still weren't having any luck. After McClellan's disastrous campaign, Lincoln briefly sent out one General John Pope to attack Northern Virginia. Hey man, just checking in. How's it going? Well, the Confederates kicked my butt at Cedar Mountain. Then they raided my camp and ran off with my money and clothes. Also, I appear to have been wedgied. Lee defeated Pope at yet another battle at Bull Run, in which nearby farm families once again got caught off in the fighting. Hurry up, Martha! There's another war out here! I'm waiting for my hair to dry! Wilmer McLean, sick of war, moved his family south, where he knew the war would definitely, absolutely, never touch him again. But Lincoln had yet another problem to contend with. European powers, in particular the UK, were looking increasingly like they may intervene diplomatically on the side of the Confederates. They were missing their precious supply of southern cotton because of the Union blockade, and they wanted to see a swift conclusion to the war. The tension between America and Great Britain had been increasing, especially after Confederate diplomats were discovered on a British ship. Huh. How familiar does this sound, guys? How familiar does this sound? I'm saying I've talked about 1864. I mean, part two is going to be awesome. But how familiar does this sound? Now, after McClellan's failure to take Richmond, the UK declared it impossible for the North to win. Lincoln needed something to prevent Europe from getting involved. And after more petitioning from abolitionists, he decided maybe the time was finally right to make the war about ending the institution he hated, slavery. If the North had a noble cause to fight for, Europe would be less likely to intervene. But Lincoln and his cabinet knew before they could declare something as radical as emancipation, they needed a victory, especially now that the Confederates were about to go on the attack. Aware that he had a limited number of men and supplies, Lee now hoped that if he could just threaten Washington, D.C. militarily, he would gain Europe's recognition and crush Northern morale in time for the midterm elections, forcing the North to negotiate. With confidence at an all-time high, for the first time, Robert E. Lee invaded the North. But on September 13th, the North finally had some luck.
Oh boy, it's my lucky day. A cigar in a field. Hey, what's this wrapped around it? Oh my gosh! That's right, the North had discovered General Lee's battle plans wrapped around some cigars. And in them, they saw that Lee had split up his forces. McClellan headed out from DC, and the two sides met in the Battle of Antietam, a crucial battle that would decide the course of the war. It saw the most vicious fighting to date, and still remains the single bloodiest day in American history. But for once, the North came out victorious, and Lee was forced to retreat. He's on the run. Chase him down and finish him off. No. You know what, old buddy, old pal? You're fired. You're fired. The North had won their crucial victory. Lincoln breathed a huge sigh of relief. And with that win, he was prepared to take a huge step. On September 22nd, the Emancipation Proclamation was issued. In January, all slaves held in the Confederate States would be, as far as the U.S. government was concerned, officially free. Throughout the North, free black men and women rejoiced, knowing that if the North were to win, their brothers and sisters would no longer be held in bondage. The proclamation also had the intended effect on Europe, who were not willing to oppose a pledge to end slavery. <laughs> you see how that goes? You see how you make them uh, stop telling you what you're supposed to be doing and what you're not supposed to be doing? Do you see that? That's exactly how you get it done. That is exactly how you get it done. You proclaim something that they cannot side with. You proclaim something that will make them run for the hills if they opposed it. Now, before we get into part two, while you're thinking of what you just watched, which when applied with 150 years, 60, 70, well, yeah, 100 and, 100 and, oh my gosh. Just think application of what you saw to today how, what does that tell you how does that make you feel that McCullen kind of seems like the federal government every which step of the way that the president has been moving yes this is exactly it now hopefully Ronald Reagan can remind you during this short break while we get some coffee and cigarettes listen to his speech from 1981 it's a pretty stellar one prospered as no other people on earth. It was because here in this land, we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. The price for this freedom at times has been high, but we have never been unwilling to pay that price. Those who would trade our freedom for the soup kitchen of the welfare state have told us they have a utopian solution of peace without victory. They call their policy accommodation. And they say if we'll only avoid any direct confrontation with the enemy, he'll forget his evil ways and learn to love us. All who oppose them are indicted as warmongers. They say we offer simple answers to complex problems. Well, perhaps there is a simple answer. Not an easy answer, but simple. If you and I have the courage to tell our elected officials that we want our national policy based on what we know in our hearts is morally right, we cannot buy our security, our freedom from the threat of the bomb by committing an immorality so great as saying to a billion human beings now enslaved behind the Iron Curtain, give up your dreams of freedom because to save our own skins, we're willing to make a deal with your slave masters. Alexander Hamilton said, a nation which can prefer disgrace to danger is prepared for a master and deserves one. 
Now let's set the record straight. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war. But there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace, and you can have it in the next second. Surrender. Admittedly, there's a risk in any course we follow other than this. But every lesson of history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement. And this is the specter our well-meaning liberal friends refuse to face, that their policy of accommodation is appeasement. And it gives no choice between peace and war, only between fight or surrender. If we continue to accommodate, continue to back and retreat, eventually we have to face the final demand, the ultimatum. And what then? Well, Nikita Khrushchev has told people he knows what our answer will be. He has told them that we are retreating under the pressure of the Cold War, and someday, when the time comes to deliver the final ultimatum, our surrender will be voluntary, because by that time, he will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. He believes this because from our side he's heard voices pleading for peace at any price, or better rev than death, or as one commentator put it, he'd rather live on his knees than die on his feet. And therein lies the road to war, because those voices don't speak for the rest of us. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis. Didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies there is a price we will not pay there is a point beyond which they must not advance this is the meeting in the phrase of very gold water peace through strength winston churchill said the destiny of man is not measured by material contradictions the great forces around the moon and the world we learn their spirits not animals he said there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space which whether we like it or not spells do you and I have promised you death. We'll preserve for our children this the last best hope of men on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step in the thousand years of darkness. He has faith that you and I have the ability and the dignity of the right to make our own decisions and determine our own destiny. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes. They just don't know where to look. On the far shore, the sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of single white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David. They had a tomb in tiny fraction of the that has been paid for our freedom. Each one of those markers is a monument to the kind of hero I spoke of earlier. Their lives ended. This is called Delroy. The
Salerno, and halfway around the world on Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Porkchop Hill, the Chosin Reservoir. We won't go And far. in a hundred rice paddies and jungles of a place called Vietnam. Under one such marker lies a young man, Martin Treptow, who left his job in a small town barbershop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. There on the Western Front, he was killed trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. We're told that on his body was found a diary. On the flyleaf, under the heading, My Pledge, he had written these words. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. The crisis we're facing today does not require of us the kind of sacrifice that Martin Treptow and so many thousands of others were called upon to make. It does require, however, our best effort and our willingness to believe in ourselves and to believe in our capacity to perform great deeds, to believe that together, with God's help, we can and will resolve the problems which now confront us. And after all, why shouldn't we believe that? We are Americans. God bless you and thank you. Thank you very much. Indeed. We are Americans. Are we just going to bend the knee and let them take away our nation, take away our voice, take away our freedom? And like President Reagan said, that soldier said that he acted in the way as if the whole weight of the nation relied on him. If every single one of you acted with actions, that the whole nation's future relies on you, lays on your shoulders, <laughs> you'd realize just how quickly you become a giant. And this is why Americans have been able to survive these attacks on the idea of what we've created hundreds of years ago. A nation that was a beacon of hope for freedom and prosperity, for unity amongst all beings with love and under one God. This is how it was created with that in mind. The secret weapon for winning this is you. It's not President Trump. It's you. You are the giants. And all of you are the voice. Those of you sitting there listening to me now think, what can I do? Well, are you going to go out in silence? I'm just saying. They've taken away your voice. Are you going to stand for it? If I was in your face and just took your lollipop right out of your hand and started licking it, wouldn't you just knock me out? Bitch slap me? Of course you would. So what makes this different? What 
that the media has the megaphone? What? That those global allies are just watching? Kind of eerily familiar on what, what did Abraham Lincoln have to do? He had to pick something where they can't come back with anything. The thing is, what is he going to pick now? What is he going to pick to make them shut up, put a sock in it? He's done everything right. And yet for some reason, everyone is simply complaining that we're not being heard when we have the loudest voice there is on this planet. Chinese may have a wall you could see from space, but we've got the loudest mouths. They hear us from everywhere. There is not any American out there that doesn't realize how loud they can be. It's all about us taking back the power that we gave them. It's all about us telling them, I don't listen to you. I listen to my president. You're nobody. You know, many people are like, well, there were tweets and there was arguing and this. And listen, I'm going to tell you this in full faith. We've already won. You just don't see it. The fact that you're still doubting that that's happened is a big deal. But do not take the outcome that is present as a ticket to sit idly. Because that's not what you should be doing. You are part of that solution. And without you, this guy is simply making phone calls waiting on you to shout out. I'm going to share with you one of my favorite photos um, of President Trump. I have it on my Instagram. I'm going to find it quickly for you. Um, for those of you listening on podcast, I'm, I'm Tori says on Instagram, there was a photo he took when he went uh, to England, sitting in Winston Churchill's chair. It is one of the most incredible photos of our president because it was at that moment that you realize that's what's up. And <laughs> it's a pretty good one. And I actually put a quote on it as he was sitting there. So I'm going to get my screen up for those of you uh, that are watching on Twitch, uh, wherever I'm allowed to, DLive, YouTube, Facebook. So let me see if I can zoom in. I can. One more. Perfect. All right. So let me share this with you. So here he is sitting on Winston Churchill's chair. History will be kind to me because I intend to write it. That was Winston Churchill's phrase. And here's the president sitting in that chair. He is indeed writing history. He's written history already. I'm telling you this with eyes in the future. Thousands of books, songs, essays, and papers will be written about this man. We should be really proud as Americans that we have a man like this in the captain's chair while under fire by those next to him. Next to him. They're bottlenecking everything to him. And it's okay. It is okay. Because one thing you all know is that our president isn't a man that's conventional. He isn't a man that listens to his advisors and his brass and his whatever. 
He's a man that listens to the people. And so the first hour, I wanted to walk you through history so you can see what it was like during the first term of another rebel, a rebel that came out of nowhere that nobody wanted, a rebel that had corrupt know-it-alls around him every single day. And yet there's a massive statue of him sitting in a chair. There are stories and songs written about him and will be for eons. People remember him as the man who abolished slavery and did the whole emancipation. Again, think of what the president has done. He is not only leading us, the people of the United States, but he is leading the world into this understanding of what is going on. Remember what I've told you about resonating. I mean, if you understand how light simply is, does not move, does not go fast. That's a myth. It exists. Darkness sits on light. It is not present. It has to have a place to sit. And everything is light. Understand that. Everything. Everything. There's not one thing that's missing on that statement. Just everything. So now I want to take you guys to part two. Now, this is going to be quite interesting because many of you are going to be like, wait a minute, because this is how things come into perspective. This, you know, trip down memory lane of real history, even though it's oversimplified and funny, right? It makes very strong points that are necessary for you to look to history to find out exactly what the truth of today is. Because Unfortunately, insanity <laughs> is doing the same thing over and over again and hoping that you get a different outcome. Well, are we going to do this over again? I don't think so. I don't think so. Or raged on. The Confederates attempted an invasion of Kentucky, hoping the state as a whole would join them, but they were pushed back. The Indian Territory saw Native American tribes ally with one side or the other in the hopes of securing rights after the war. Along the Mississippi, General Ulysses S. Grant remained one of the few Union generals scoring major victories. With his best pal, General Sherman, by his side, Grant led his armies down the Mississippi to the Confederate stronghold of Vicksburg. Both sides knew that if Vicksburg fell, the Confederacy would be split in two and the Confederates prepared for an intense defense of the city. But back in the East, Lincoln still wanted somebody to march south and take Richmond. Having given General McClellan the boot, he needed a new man in charge. All right, Mr. President, option one is General Hooker. Bit of a nutcase, but a good general. Option two, his qualifications are his name is Burnside and he has freaking dope-ass sideburns. Say no more. So General Burnside was put in charge of the Army of the Potomac and sent south. Lincoln hoped he finally had a general who could succeed. Burnside met General Lee at the city of Fredericksburg, where he intended to rapidly cross the river and take the city. But the Union War Department was too slow in delivering the pontoon bridges, and the two sides were forced to camp across from each other, close enough to speak. Hey, Yankee, ready to get your butt kicked? Yeah, right, Rebel. God is on our side. No way. God's on our side. Oh, you think so? Well, why don't we ask him? Hey, God, whose side are you on? Ow. Dude, uncool. With over 100,000 men, the Union Army finally launched their massive attack on the 11th of December. But by now, the Confederates had amassed their forces. 
During the battle, wave after wave of brave Union men marched headlong into a brutal Confederate onslaught. Even the Confederates couldn't believe what they were seeing, and in one moment of camaraderie, a Confederate sergeant, unable to take it, reportedly came out into the field to tend to the Union wounded. Seeing this, the Union troops held their fire. Still, Burnside and his forces were soundly defeated at Fredericksburg and forced to retreat. Lincoln's popularity and Northern morale continued to plummet, especially as the winter heading into 1863 was bad. The winter camps were rife with disease. The food was less than appealing. On both sides, men began to leave. Hey, where do you think you're going? I'm deserting. What? Don't you love your country? Yes, I do. And I'm trying to get back to it as quick as I can. Lincoln, ever the kind and caring man he was, spent much of his time pardoning deserters' death sentences. Oh my, here's a 17-year-old boy sentenced to be hanged. Well, I'd better suspend his sentence, or he'll be suspended tomorrow. <sighs> so, okay, so now we're seeing battles that are being won and lost, pushing back. I want you to think of those battles, of everything we have endured as the people, as battles on our nation from the left and the Republican rhinos. Think of those battles in terms of policies, in terms of how they asphyxiated us and how they've demoralized us. Think of it that way. This is where we're at. This is how they're moving up. We're not gonna march into war. This is gonna be one of the most civilized ones. And as I wrote back in 2015, 16, 17, I don't remember, I shared it. Um, this is one of the most civilized revolutions we're going through. There's not bloodshed that you can see. You're not going to be tending to the wounded because you won't see them. They're just gone. So I want you to think of these battles and wars as policies and what they've done to us. Think of the demoralization that we've undergone by not holding those accountable these past four years. It had to be this way. What? To try to keep the numbers up, both sides had introduced conscription. There was controversy in the North, however, since rich men could simply pay to have someone else fight on their behalf. Riots broke out in New York City with enraged mobs furious at the idea of going to fight for slaves, an idea that many of them simply did not support. However, after so much pressure, the Union had finally begun allowing black men to enlist, and these men, knowing what they were fighting for, signed up. By the end of the war, nearly 200,000 troops, 10% of the Union Army, would be black. The valor and bravery they showed throughout, silencing critics. Okay, well that last guy was useless. Let's try this Hooker fellow. General Joseph Hooker was put in charge of the Army of the Potomac, and once again, Lincoln ordered him to move south and take Richmond. Hooker met Lee at the Battle of Chancellorsville, where Hooker had over twice the men Lee did. Lee was forced to defy all military convention and split his smaller force into two. Lee had absolutely no chance of winning, and Lee won. It was his masterpiece. Lee did suffer one significant loss during the battle, though. As his right-hand man, Stonewall Jackson, was riding back to the Confederate lines at night, the nervous Confederate troops, unable to recognize him, opened fire. You boys done goofed up. Jackson died eight days later. <laughs> Want to make a bet that was an infiltrator? See, that's how you do a regular warfare. That's where your hat comes on right? When you've endured it for 24, 30 months and things change, you infiltrate. This isn't about invasion of our nation by another nation. It is about the infiltration. And first we have to see how did they infiltrate? Well, let's see how we do it. And think of the slaves that signed up 
you know, all the black Americans that are suddenly free, they signed up for war because they knew what was up. Hmm. It's like you, you're signing up for this because you know exactly what's up. You're not just doing it because, uh, I don't know, because it's your job, not because you just love your country, but you know that you love your children. You love your grandchildren that are to come or maybe here, your great grandchildren, and you will fight for it. You have been enlisted. Are you catching my drift? As for Lincoln, he couldn't believe it. It was yet another loss, and Northern support continued to waver. While the Union kept on struggling in the East, out West, unconditional surrender Grant was making moves as always. In an attempt to take Vicksburg on the Mississippi, he made a series of risky and bold movements. He sent a cavalry raid and Dane Sherman North to confuse the enemy. Then, aided by a fleet of ironclads on the river, he raced his army south to cross the Mississippi. Aware that the terrain to the north was restrictive, instead, he strategically moved northeast, hitting Vicksburg's supply line and defending his rear from Confederate armies in Jackson. Once he reached Vicksburg, the Confederate defense became hardened, and Grant was forced to settle in for a month-long siege, during which time he got rather bored. Despite not taking the city, Lincoln loved it and encouraged Grant to hold firm. It would only be a matter of time before the Mississippi was in Union hands. Around this time, the people in the west of Virginia, who had remained loyal to the Union throughout, finally broke away to form their own state. They could have named it anything in the world, but the creative minds at the time came up with the ingenious West Virginia. Back in Washington, Lincoln once again wanted a new general to take command. Oh my goodness, why do all these 19th century generals look so bust? Look, we got Sleepy Eyes Joe here. That's Princess Leia with a mustache. E.T. phoned the doctor. Fine, why don't we give Snapping Turtle McGee here a shot? So General Snapping Turtle McGee was put in charge of the Army of the Potomac. And it was a crucial time for the Union. Because once again, the Confederates decided to go on the attack. So far, they had done exceedingly well militarily. But as the war kept going, the Confederate economy was crumbling. Riots broke out in the streets of Richmond as the price of bread skyrocketed. Supplies were dwindling. Jefferson Davis wanted to send men west to rescue Vicksburg, but General Lee knew the longer the war lasted, the worse their chances got. And he still hoped if he could just threaten DC, the already demoralized North would surrender. So in June 1863, with the momentum behind him, General Lee once again entered the North, fighting his way through Maryland and into Pennsylvania. General Meade set out to meet him for what would be the most significant battle of the entire war. If the Confederates won, DC could fall. If the Union won, it would be a turning point as the Confederates would run out of steam and the small town that was to get caught up in the crossfire of the largest battle in American history was Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. On June 1st, units from each army encountered one another and skirmished through the town itself. The townspeople were forced to take refuge, except for one man who reportedly ran outside for a strange reason. Joseph, what are you doing? I'm not gonna let them take my beans. How many times do I have to tell you they're not here for your beans? Isn't it interesting, though, how Pennsylvania is now in the picture? That's the battleground we have again. See the way history repeats itself, strategic points. Because I'm going to show you a video of even Churchill in Syria talking about Turkey, which is relevant today. These are all things you need to look back on to understand where you are right now. Because this is where we are right now. We are here right now. This is where we're at. The, the, the end of this with the beginning of the second term, look at where we are right now and how they are moving. Because I want you guys to see this is only a movie. It's just 
couple hundred years, not a couple hundred, a little over a hundred years into the future. Same movie, different characters, different foundations. And yes, you've been recruited. You just don't have a musket in your hand. By the second day, over a hundred thousand men stretched for miles across the battlefield. Lee took the initiative, deciding to hit the enemy's flanks, and he came very close to breaking through the Union's disorganized left. But Union Colonel Joshua Chamberlain ordered a desperate bayonet charge, smashing into the Confederates and forcing them back. The Union forces held across the line. On the final day, Lee believed the Union Army had fortified its flanks, so he decided to finish them off with one massive central assault. The Confederates rushed at the Union lines during General Pickett's charge, and this time, it was the Union's turn to unleash hell. Meade had correctly guessed Lee's strategy, and the Confederates were decimated, forced to turn and flee. A devastated General Lee called out to his fleeing and wounded men, telling them it was his fault. And after holding for a counterattack that never came, he ordered a retreat back into Virginia. The North had just managed to score a massive victory, and one they desperately needed. And if that wasn't enough, in the West, after a month-long siege, Vicksburg finally fell. The North now held the Mississippi. And better yet, it was the 4th of July. With control of the Mississippi, Union forces moved into Arkansas and Tennessee. Tennessee in particular saw heavy fighting, with Union General Rosecrans masterfully pushing Braxton Bragg's Army of the Tennessee out of Tennessee. He suffered a major setback, however, at the Bloody Battle of Chickamauga and ended up under a Confederate siege at Chattanooga. At one point during the siege, a temporary truce was declared so that wounded men could be recovered. And often in the Civil War, during these small truces, men from both sides would meet in the middle to trade things like tobacco, coffee, and maybe even honey. Do you like honey? Me too. Bees are great. And you know what rhymes with honey? Money. Did you know honey can help you save money? Let me explain. Nuga. Thankfully, General Grant, now in charge of all Western Union armies, showed up and karate kicked Bragg right back into Georgia. Like this. With Sherman and Hooker, Grant took on Confederate positions in the mountains around the city, including the famous battle above the clouds and Mission Ridge. Grant continued to be Lincoln's number one guy. With these victories, Lincoln hoped the war was finally turning. Back in Gettysburg, the entire town had been turned into a hospital to care for the scores of wounded men. Throughout the war, on both sides, Women such as Clara Barton rose to the occasion, doing crucial work on the home front and volunteering as nurses for those who had given their lives. A new national cemetery was to be established at Gettysburg, and Abraham Lincoln traveled out to attend the opening ceremony. At the event, the main speaker spoke for two hours. Then, Abraham Lincoln was called forward to give some brief, appropriate remarks. Now, I just want to tell you guys, so as you saw, the general was in high, high marks with President Lincoln, the general that knew irregular warfare, the general that recruited all these people. Exactly. And we have the same general relationship right now. Though he's not officially in the ranks, he's recruited every single red, white, and blue bleeding American. And he's done that effectively because he's allowed you to use the weapons of today, not muskets to be able to move along. Uh, this is where it comes to it. And this speech, we've had an equivalent. So let's listen to this portion and then listen to the equivalent that was given at around the same time. Back then it was soldiers with muskets. Now we're digital soldiers. Can you see that? In just two minutes, he masterfully and poignantly 
iterated America's national purpose and the need to continue the fight. The Gettysburg Address would become one of the most famous speeches in American history. While they were now making progress, the North still couldn't find a decisive victory in the East. And that was bad news for Lincoln, because his presidency was now in its fourth year. So, now, before we enter the domain that we are at now, the Gettysburg Address is very similar to another address that all of us have heard, and all of us, unfortunately, tear up just listening to it. Uh, fortunate, I guess, because it pulls at the strings of your heart because you know what is being said is true. So for me, this is President Trump's Gettysburg Address. I want nuance, I want bold colors, red on their knees. I mean, that says a picture about America that I haven't seen ever before. He's woken up a group of people, Neil, that have gone ignored. And Donald Trump, to me, is the last hope for America. This country has such potential. I love the country. You have to have heart. You have to take care of women's health issues. You have to take care of poor people that don't have, that they're never going to have a shot. And you have to take care of African-American youth who have never been in a worse position than they are right now. We are standing up for America and for the American people. There's a group of people in America. Years from now, some of them may look back and ask themselves whether they've made the right choice, whether they've made the most of the opportunities they've been given. Together, we have the same mission. Over the course of your life, you will find that things are not always fair. You will find that things happen to you that you do not deserve and that are not always warranted. But you have to put your head down and fight, fight, fight. Never, ever, ever give up. Don't give in, don't back down, and never stop doing what you know is right. Nothing worth doing ever, ever, ever came easy. And the more righteous your fight, the more opposition that you will face. In your hearts are inscribed the values of service, sacrifice, and devotion. Now you must go forth into the world and turn your hopes and dreams into action. America has always been the land of dreams because America is a nation of true believers. When the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, they prayed. When the founders wrote the Declaration of Independence, they invoked our creator four times. Because in America, we don't worship government, we worship God. It is why our currency proudly declares, in God we trust. And it's why we proudly proclaim that we are one nation under God. The story of America is the story of an adventure that began with deep faith, big dreams, and humble beginnings. The next generation of American leaders never, ever give up. There'll be times in your life you'll want to quit, never quit. Never stop fighting for what you believe in and for the people who care about you. Carry yourself 
with dignity and pride. Demand the best from yourself. The more people tell you it's not possible, that it can't be done, the more you should be absolutely determined to prove them wrong. Treat the word impossible as nothing more than motivation. Relish the opportunity to be an outsider. The more that a broken system tells you that you're wrong, the more certain you should be that you must keep pushing ahead. You must keep pushing forward. And always have the courage to be yourself. America is better when people put their faith into action. Pray to God and follow his teachings. Today, each of you begins a new chapter as well. When your story goes from here, it will be defined by your vision, your perseverance, and your grit. You will build a future where we have the courage to chase our dreams no matter what the cynics and the doubters have to say. You will have the confidence to speak the hopes in your hearts and to express the love that stirs your souls. As long as you have pride in your beliefs, courage in your convictions, and faith in God, then you will not fail. As long as America remains true to its values, loyal to its citizens, and devoted to its creator, then our best days are yet to come. May God bless the class of 2017. May God bless the United States of America. And I just want to let you know that God blesses you. And I want to just say, you are special in every way. God bless you and God bless America. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. And now that speech is President Trump's Gettysburg. And he didn't just say it for the class. In 2017, he became our president. He was telling you, congratulations, America. You've graduated. We're here. Let's do it. My Gettysburg Address. Let's remember what it said. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here.
It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they fought here, have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave their last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth. Those were the words of Abraham Lincoln. He was there to ensure that there was a resting place for those that made our future possible, our existence possible. And now our president gave the speech of saying, here we go. Let's do it. This is where we're at. Now, let's continue with that little history lesson. While all of you are waiting to hear news, what? On Dominion machines, on voting ballots, I'm telling you, every little rabbit hole you fall into demoralizes you. Every single one. What you need to be doing is focusing on the cure, on the cure of this issue, on the remedy of this issue. And that's to find your still, to understand who you are. Are you a subject or are you a free man? Are you a citizen of the United States or a commodity of the United States as a corporation? What we must be doing now during this time of, <laughs> I don't want to say turmoil, it's perfect chaos. What you have to do is find that still within you to understand exactly what's happening, to understand that you've been recruited unknowingly, but very willingly by an incredible general that, you know, was not pushed forward into the nation with his stars and with his uniform to fix this, but in an irregular way, penetrated our lives your life, your children's lives, to inspire you through the attacks he went through, demonstrating to you what a true American patriot is. And that is indeed what we are seeing now. Everyone has their part to play, every single person. But just like Abraham Lincoln, and just like every other great leader throughout history, we can go back to the times of Caesar, right? We can go back even to biblical times. Ideas are the reason you get killed. Ideas are the reason that we have change. Remember, it was the idea of love, the idea of cherishing your creator, that his own child, right, was crucified for it. People, as the president even said, that have ideas, that want to change the world, will be under the most attack. They will never be embraced. It is after. I'm pretty sure if Jesus, for example, right, had the ability, he would have said, hate me now, you'll love me later, right, to all the people that wanted to crucify him. Just like you should be saying to people you engage with, you may hate me now, but you will love me later. 
as the president of the United States says to all those screaming liberals that have been so far demoralized, you will hate me now, but you will love me later. Later, maybe a decade later when they wake up from their trance. But like President Reagan said, there's so much out there. We've stopped looking up. If you look up, there's a vast universe of things that you don't even think about because the capacity isn't there yet. <laughs> and that's because look at what we're doing here. I mean, let's just put it this way. <laughs> if there were other intelligent life forms, would you like humans? Can't help but feel for it. But the key of David is here. And it is unlocked, that seventh door right now, and it's there. And what you need to be doing is resonating on that frequency, understanding what humankind should be standing for and what has already happened. When I tell you this is just a movie, I'm not understating that. As you can see, if you were to apply technology of today, the situation of today, what you saw during the times of Abraham Lincoln are pretty much the same here. You know, it was almost two decades ago that a bunch of people and myself got together and thought, maybe we should tell people, like, you know, write a story, do something. Maybe we should tell them what the future would be like. And you were warned. You were warned. You were warned of a war. You were warned of a split. You were warned of the cities in the country. You were warned. And now you can even see where those cities and countries are and think, why is the battleground always the same? Always the same. Without fail, the battleground has always been the same. Like I've been saying, Idlib in Syria, always the same. Pennsylvania, always the same. These are things people need to remember because history is just the future with less technology. That's basically it. And so this is how you can understand where you're at so you don't get demoralized. And when people talk about pockets of information that is junk for the brain right now, hmm, you can see further. Now here where we here is the period of time that we are at. Pay attention to the eerie similarities but also pay attention to the outcome. In 1864, there was an election coming. The Confederates knew this too, and with little hope left of being able to threaten the North militarily, they believed their last shot at victory may be in the election, since Lincoln, emancipation, and the war itself weren't exactly popular. People in the North were sick of war and wanted to put it behind them. Robert E. Lee hoped that if he could just hold out and continue to inflict more defeats, the people of the North would vote Lincoln out and replace him with a Southern sympathizer who may be willing to negotiate. Lincoln knew now he desperately needed a victory. Now, I know what you're thinking. But oversimplified, if Lincoln loves General Grant so much, then why doesn't he put him in charge of the campaign in the East? Well, guess what, loyal subscriber? You've hit the nail on the head. You're bold, Grant. I'll grant you that. I'm promoting you to General-in-Chief, and I ain't taking you for granted. Now, I want you to go defeat Lee. Grant me my wish. Please stop. So Grant was put in charge and he came up with a new plan. He wanted to press the Confederates on all fronts, with General Banks to capture Mobile, Alabama, General Sherman moving south to Atlanta, and Grant joining the Army of the Potomac as they advanced through Virginia. In May 1864, that plan went into action.
Sherman steadily advanced on Atlanta, facing off against the smaller Confederate army under General Joseph E. Johnston. In addition, a cruel yet highly skilled cavalry general and winner of the funniest Confederate statue award, Nathan Bedford Forrest, was also nearby doing his best to threaten Sherman's advance. But in a series of battles, Sherman dominated and pushed Johnson back to the city. But he was held just outside of Atlanta itself and was forced to lay siege. Meanwhile, the main show was happening to the east in Virginia. The Union's top general was finally about to face off against the Confederacies. Lincoln hoped Grant would bring something new to the Eastern Theater, and bring something new. He did. As Grant began moving south, Lee still regularly outmaneuvered him and inflicted heavy casualties, hoping to demoralize the North as much as he could. But here's what set Grant apart from others. He knew Lee was running out of men and that the North by comparison had plenty. Grant would throw his forces at Lee, and even when Lee repelled them, Grant, rather than pulling back, would give the order to keep moving forward and flank Lee again and again. In under six weeks, 80,000 men would be killed, wounded, or missing. In DC, Grant was criticized for being a butcher. At the Battle of the Wilderness, the Union casualties were so heavy that Grant reportedly began to weep. But still, Grant could replace his losses. Lee couldn't, and he was being pushed all the way back to Richmond. Lee knew once he got there, he'd be under siege. Then it would only be a matter of time. Close to Richmond, Grant again suffered horrific casualties in a miscalculated assault at Cold Harbor. Then, trying to be a tricksty trickster, instead of moving on Richmond directly, Grant moved towards Petersburg to flank the Confederate capital and cut its supply line. But, just like Sherman, Grant was halted outside of the city, and he too was forced to settle in for a siege. Two identical sieges would not be good enough for Lincoln's re-election. The people of the North saw the casualties Grant had been taking, and they weren't happy. To make matters worse, Lee had sent Jubal Early north to threaten D.C. with the hope of forcing Grant to withdraw troops from Richmond. Early was repelled on the outskirts of the city, with President Lincoln even attending as an observer, but the North had been given a fright. So with the war currently in a stalemate, who was to be Lincoln's opponent in the critical 1864 election? Who? Sponsored by Uncle Joe's Snake Oil Emporium. That's funny, right? Now... Think about it. Instead of battles and wars, as you saw with casualties lost, think of them as demoralized souls because there are tons of people that support the president and at this point are completely demoralized because the witch didn't go to jail or they didn't see anybody being held accountable. The fact that the FBI had Hunter Biden's computer since 2018, the fact that they have had Wiener's laptop since 2016, all demoralization. So again, it is because it's within that would not allow to move. And unfortunately, the president has to assume that the people advising him have taken an oath and they're holding it, which is not the case. This is why irregular warfare was necessary. Soldiers of the president of the United States at the moment may not be sitting in the White House, may not have a title, yet they've been fighting the war for him, unknowingly to many. The best way to fight a war is to be sneaky, right? You got to know what they're going to do, and you've got to know how you're going to win it. This was all about. Optics, optics, fuck optics, excuse my French. I don't care what anybody thinks, neither should the president. The more that leaks out, the more people are demoralized and they just want to get on with their lives, have the Democrats stop with this fake, 
epidemic, infodemic, the rubbish, right? We're tired of it. Just chip us already and let us be on our way. There are so many people that I've spoken to. They're like, I'm so tired. And it's like, dude, the war just started. Now you're bowing out. See, the recruitment phase of these first four years from various soldiers and very unconventional ones has been happening. Many of them will be unsung. Many of them. Remember, we've talked about the unsung heroes before. We've talked about how there's a hero, but there's like 50 of them in the background. Many of them are you. This is how we fight. So think, who's Grant? <laughs> Who are the soldiers? And what is happening? So here we are trying to see sponsored by Uncle Joe's snake. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this up. And I'm pretty sure this guy didn't predict this. This is a pretty old video, if I'm not mistaken. We'll check the date. But this is pretty interesting, right? Choice of words. 1864 presidential debate. So here we are where people are demoralized completely. President Trump's base, like President Lincoln's base, completely demoralized. And we're having elections. Here where we're at. Watch. Would the Democrats choose? Guess what, baby? I'm back. That's right. General George B. McClellan would run for president against Abraham Lincoln. My fellow countrymen, if you elect me, I, the great General George McClellan, will fearlessly and valiantly win the war. Wait, are you saying that the general that he had, that he promoted, that he asked to do things, was doing it kind of light-handed, didn't really want to do a lot? I don't want to ruffle feathers. We don't want to do that. Can you be, can you foresee what's coming? Pay attention. Unlike this douchebag, many Democrats, however, including McClellan's running mate, wanted to end the war. So it's possible McClellan may have ended up fearlessly and valiantly making peace with the Confederates, which is exactly what they were hoping for. With the war in a stalemate and Lincoln still not popular, it looked like McClellan would win and the Confederacy may have a chance at surviving. After all, Lincoln himself said that without some kind of major victory, it seemed exceedingly probable that this administration will not be reelected. Well, fret not, Abe. Because if it's a major victory you want, it's a major victory you'll get. Atlanta had been under siege by General Sherman for just over a month. After a number of battles around the city, Sherman sent a force south to sever the city's supply line, and Confederate General Hood was forced to abandon it. Atlanta, one of the Confederacy's most important cities, had fallen into Union hands. For many, it was clear that the Confederacy's defeat was now inevitable, and the war would soon be over. When the final results came in, Lincoln had won with an Electoral College landslide with the troops in particular voting overwhelmingly for Lincoln. Which now, wait a minute. Think of it this way. So our president won, but what was his victory? See, his victory was pushing the vaccine because everyone told him if you push out a vaccine really, 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 really quick, you're going to win. Because the, 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 the Europeans, the Australians, the Chinese, the who can't talk smack if you get a vaccine. Pay attention. Eh -eh. Wrong answer. Trump won anyway. Vaccine, no vaccine, he still would have won because nobody wants globalism. Nobody wants lies. Nobody wants a phodemic. Nobody wants mockingbird media. Nobody wants this. Now, a great idea that uh, Millie Weaver will be putting forward as well in a video, I think, tomorrow. It'll be your surprise with a lot of, a lot of intricate details because she delivers with 
you know, Gavin, they put together such good content in such a great way, kind of like this oversimplified civil war. It's fun, but it's hard hitting. You know, there's ways that we can tip this on its head and maybe that pin will pull. We need a victory. And you would think, all right, he won, but they stole it. So this didn't happen to Abraham Lincoln per se, per se. It didn't happen to Abraham Lincoln. Watch what happens. Which must have been touching for their commander in chief. Hey man, looks like you lost. No hard feelings? I didn't lose. I merely failed to win. In January, Lincoln involved himself heavily in ensuring the 13th Amendment made it through Congress. In a narrow and historic vote, the amendment passed. Slavery would now be constitutionally banished throughout the nation. Black men and women watching up from the galleries knew the work had only just begun. A couple months later, at his second inauguration, with victory right around the corner, he didn't celebrate, he didn't gloat. Instead, he emphasized the need for reunification and binding up wounds. To him, Americans, North or South, were to again be compatriots. However, listening to Lincoln speak that day was a man who had no interest in reunification. John Wilkes Booth, an actor living in D.C., was also a deep Southern sympathizer. And as the war turned against the Confederacy, depressed and full of hate, he was already plotting his revenge on the man he held responsible. Uh, I want to beg to differ on that one. So how many of you really think that a random actor that was listening to the speech decided to take him out? Like, last time they took out a president, which was JFK, it was very well organized within the U.S. government. So think about it this way. Mm, if Lincoln was to finish his second term, it would have been solidifying the foundations, right? You, they wanted him one, they, one term they can undo, two they can't. You see, I didn't lose, I just failed to win. And in this case, I didn't lose, I won. And it's like, no, you didn't prove it. Media says we did. I mean, the Associated Press is now an official, you know, declare of presidents. And counting ballots overseas is totally okay. Mm-hmm. I totally won. Prove different. You see? So back then, do you really think that some drunk actor decided that he's just going to do it? Kind of like, you know, Lee Oswald. Ah, come on. Think about it. Let's think about it. Let's dispel this. Right? Let's dispel this. So, again... This is why I said changing your vice president during your second term is a big no-no. But you can shift. Uh, I'll leave it at that. With further Confederate losses, it was pretty clear at this point who would win. But still, Jefferson Davis showed no sign of giving in. The North were frustrated to see the conflict being dragged out. Why waste more lives in Atlanta? General Sherman believed he had the key to forcing the Confederacy's hand. He had an unusually modern concept that an army could only survive with the support of the people. Strike at the people and the army collapses. Sherman decided to do something unprecedented. He would remove his 62,000 men from their supply line and march through the heartland of the Confederacy where they would live off the land. There, they would wreak havoc. As they marched, they tore up railroads, burned farms, and destroyed communication lines. They also liberated thousands of slaves. The damage done was estimated at $1.4 billion. The tactics were cruel, but to Sherman, it was better than losing yet more men in battle. 
In December, he reached Savannah, Georgia, but he wasn't done yet. Next, he turned north to inflict his punishment on the first state to secede, South Carolina. As he moved, he came ever closer to General Lee's army, still holding out at Petersburg. The siege of Petersburg had lasted for 292 days. 60,000 of Lee's men had deserted. Numerous Union attempts to break through had failed, but when the breakthrough finally came, it came quick. On April 2nd, a Union assault finally pushed the Confederates from their defenses. Hey man, there's no need to evacuate, right? You'll rescue us like last time, right? Sorry, can't hear you. So as you saw the tactics, let me just um, pause right there. You saw that one was like, all right, I'm just going to go and demoralize all the citizens to support the Confederates. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go down there and just tell them how slavery is bad and tear shit up and, and, and then come from the South. So while the two generals are at it, right, and there's an obvious head-to-head kind of like, I don't know, election results is going on. There's another operation happening that wasn't expected. Another operation that's coming from the south, up, from the rear, up. Something that wasn't expected to be successful, as you see. So think of the strategy here. Think of the strategy here, but apply it to today. Lee narrowly escaped the city, hoping he'd be able to meet up with General Johnson and continue the fight. Grant chased him down. Richmond was evacuated, and Jefferson Davis went on the run. As they left, the Confederates set fire to military buildings. The flames burnt out of control, and as the Union troops arrived, they became firefighters. A couple of days later, Abraham Lincoln visited the war-torn city. Grant got to Lee at Appomattox Courthouse, where he trapped his forces. It was here, on April 9, 1865, that Lee saw no point in continuing. Uh, sir, listen, bub. I drank a bit too much last night, and now I'm hanging like a fruit bat on a hot day. So whatever you have to say, I don't want to hear it. Uh, General Lee says he wants to surrender. But diggity dog! Grant and Lee met in the home of a nearby farm family, owned by a man who had tried his best to escape the Civil War years earlier, Wilmer McLean. All right, can we all just hurry up and get this over with? Martha, not now! I'm cleaning! Do you want us to get rats? Grant and Lee after years of war, now spoke respectfully to one another. When Lee left, his face filled with emotion. Grant's men began to cheer, but Grant ordered them to stop. He knew that now was the time for reconciliation. Just over two weeks later, General Johnson would surrender to Sherman, ending the war for 89,000 Confederate soldiers in the largest surrender of the war. Not every Confederate state had surrendered, but the war was as good as over. Across the North, church bells rang out and celebrations erupted. In Washington, Lincoln gave a speech from the White House to a jubilant crowd, in which, among various things, he expressed his support for black voting rights. Lincoln had seen the nation through its deepest crisis. The presidency had visibly aged him. He had lost over 20 pounds. He said, sometimes, I think I am the tiredest man on earth. Now, before this ends, I want you guys to think. When this is over, soon... Why will there be a why will there be a truce? As you can see from 2017, every single executive order has been strangulating their economic ability. Now we see that they're pushing a bill of $900 billion for their less cash grab because they do not have money and they are unable to bring money from abroad huh. for the past two months now. It's been blocked. So they are out of money 
That's what happened to General Lee. He didn't have money. So they had to retreat. They had to sit. And now we have the same agreement happening. And it's like, no, don't give them. Choke them. Starve them. That's what we're doing. You're going to see the most incredible chaos come to a complete still very soon. Because this is a movie. And if we already know how it plays, we obviously know how to counter it. If you know the script, <laughs> you can rewrite it very discreetly so those that are playing out the script can't change it for you. There's a lot more coming. Things that are happening starting today. Your eyes should be clearer. Your ability to see through <laughs> a lot better. And our president is not tired. Yet he's one that lacks a lot of sleep. He's working around the clock. He's working around the clock, just like Abraham Lincoln did. I remember at that time, they didn't have the mainstream media the way we have it. They didn't have the constant bombardment of propaganda. But we do. Tons of it. They're constantly reminding you that they're louder than you when it's not true. You just hear them because they're on your speakers, they're on your TV, they're on your computer, they're on your social media. This is one of the biggest wars ever fought, bigger than our civil war of the days of yore. This war is not only a civil war within the United States, but it is a global revolution. And our allies are treading very lightly, ignoring what is happening here as they continue their agenda. In Europe right now, you're not allowed to step out of your house after curfew. You're not allowed to say no to the vaccine. You're not allowed in some places to withdraw more than a certain amount of cash every couple days. They have bend the knee a while back. And they're still on their knees. And they have decided that I'd rather have some peace and quiet for the years that I have left. Rather than fight standing, I'd go quietly. But that's the thing. <laughs> Being an American is not that. You do not go quietly. You do not go in the darkness and without a, a roar. We're the loudest ones out there. I mean, even when we travel to other nations, Americans are just clearly loud. We wear socks with slippers, right? We go with fanny packs, not giving a rat's behind what someone has to say. We wear loud Hawaiian shirts that are completely unattractive, but we don't care. Some of us even sport Speedos, and that's weird. Because we're loud and we're proud like that, and that's the way it is. We're in your face, and we're not going to sit down. And that's the point right now. We don't care what France has to say. We don't care what the Queen has to say. We don't care what the European Union has to say, what India has to say, what Africa has to say, what Mexico has to say. We don't care. That's the bottom line. We don't care. <laughs> Why don't we care? Because the only thing we care about is what happens in our nation right now. And our nation stands together under God, indivisible, 
with liberty and justice for all. That is what America stands for. And this is very important for us to remember that. While people are tweeting about all these things, telling you about Assange and, 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 and the human trafficking, drug trafficking, the corruption, the fact that all these senators and all these congresspeople have forgotten that they serve us. They didn't forget. We told them we serve you. They didn't forget. We let them do it. But, oh, CNN, fake news. This one, fake. Yeah, we know that. We let them get that big. <laughs> and it's time we take that power back. And that is exactly what you need to remember. While people are tweeting things like, look at all this ballot fraud. No, Listen, guys, you could have had Nancy Pelosi on camera feeding ballots from her house and showing them register. They still would say that Joe Biden won fair and square. Do you understand that? They don't care because you've relinquished power. You are on your knees and you don't even know it. You're talking about the things that make you resonate on a lower frequency rather than say, I am the, the key of David. I am a giant. I am in charge. And I say what goes. I am the master of my own universe. Uh, if you were really there, <laughs> They wouldn't be here. And that's the point. Resonate there. See how amazing you are. See that you are a soldier. While many of you are, many are telling you there's a secret plan. There's all these people around and they're working in and in. Yes, there are people, the best people that have been working behind the scenes for years. Some of them outright telling you this is what's going on. I can tell you this. I've been giving you the future as much as I can. Pretty on point too. Obviously, some misinformation to obfuscate myself, of course. But <laughs> general rule of thumb is we already know who's in trouble. We already know how they did it. And we've already fixed it. The thing is, you need to see that you fixed it. You need to be loud. Now, many will say, what do we do? Do we pour on the streets? No. Every time you see someone tweet, can we just focus, guys? Focus. Focus. Yes, we know. Assange. I get it. Totally. We'll focus on that. When Right now, can we like focus on the republic? Can we focus on calling our senators and congressmen? Telling them, if you dare not do what I say, you will pay. Not with your life, but with your career. Because I get to do that because you work for me. You remind them they work for you. You remind, why isn't everybody tweeting to all their congressmen? I know there's a lot of conservatives that live in the district of Schiff. Why isn't his timeline on Twitter and Facebook? Dude, you work for me. President Trump is my president. I'm not taking an illegit, I'm not taking illegitimate Joe. You have the right to say that. Every single one of you do. Because they work for you. We aren't slaves. We aren't subject. We are free people. And we are the shareholders of this nation. No one else is. No one else is. And while they sit there reaching a deal, you want to hear it? Because here's Maria Bartiromo telling you about this deal that they struck for COVID-19. Here they are eating their expensive ice cream, 
talking smack and figuring out how they can sustain their career that's in the toilet right now. Because for all of you out there that are Republicans and think when Lindsey Graham would pull his fake sword and die on a fake hill, that they were doing something for you for four years, they've done absolutely fuck all. Nothing. They could have fixed this. They didn't want to. Why? Because they were the ones running the show from the beginning. Now, with that knowledge and that foresight, knowing that they're running it, you can mitigate, right? That's how it goes. Now, as you see a battle play, because we need to have a battle front to keep them distracted and the world, the real war is being done. The real things are being moved. Listen to where Maria Bartiromo had to tell us about the measly $600. You know what $600 does? I'll tell you what. Well, we all know I paid for cat hotel $972. So obviously it cannot afford 10 days in a cat boarding place last minute, right? $600 will get you maybe a round trip ticket from most places in DC. $600 is probably a third, maybe half of your rent or mortgage bill. $600 is restocking your pantry and getting food for the next two weeks at Walmart, not even at Whole Foods, right? Restocking, meaning you're getting all your canned goods, rice, pasta, cereals, you know, the stuff that stays there, spices, like if you were, right? Uh, $600 gets you a bit of clothes. $600 probably pays your gas for the month. What is $600? It's absolutely nothing. So here they are asking for $900 billion to give not even the whole population 600 bucks. Come on, come on. Listen to this. It makes you feel like, Maria, you're really doing a disservice right now. Stimulus stalemate finally breaks. After months of roadblocks, Congress finally reaches an agreement on a new round of stimulus relief. The $900 billion coronavirus bipartisan bill includes $600 direct payments, a temporary $300 supplemental jobless benefit. It extends both the Paycheck Protection Program and housing assistance. President Trump also signing a one-day spending bill overnight to keep the government funded through today, giving Congress some extra time to pass the stimulus deal. Joining me right now is Louisiana Congressman and House Minority Whip, Steve Scalise. Congressman, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thanks very much for being here morning. this morning, Congressman. Can you tell us a little about what went on in terms of this, uh, this bill and, and how the two sides finally came together? Sure. Uh, great to be with you, Maria. You know, look, the big focus uh, for months now has been on getting more relief to our small businesses and the millions of workers that are tied to those companies so that they can keep their jobs, uh, the businesses can make it through these tough times. And so getting a second round of PPP loans authorized was probably the number one priority. Uh, and I'm sure those loans, like the first round of PPP loans, were highly successful, uh, saved probably over 50 million jobs. And so that's probably the cornerstone of this bill. Businesses that are experiencing at least a 25% loss still to this day will be able to get a second round of forgivable loans. Uh, so, of course, a business that's doing better today, they won't be able to get it. But anybody who's struggling uh, can still be able to get another round. And by the way, we fixed uh, what, what has probably been the biggest complaint for, for weeks now is that these loans would have been taxed in the past, we're going to have full deductibility uh, for those PPP loans, so you won't be hit with the sticker shock of an end-of-year tax bill on the loan that, that got you through this pandemic. So that's going to be in there, of course, as you mentioned, some of the other uh, relief items. Affixed to the problem of surprise medical billing, that's something our doctors caucus and so many of us have wanted to try to get resolved for this probably well over a year we've been working, uh, something that families back home 
They go to a hospital. Next thing you know, weeks later, they're getting a bill for thousands of dollars that they never knew they were going to get. Uh, that will be fixed. That's a major win uh, for families across the country. Uh, so there, there's a number of other things in here in addition to this COVID relief package. Congressman, what is the plan for liability protection? We know that businesses need this liability protection in order to comfortably open their doors. They can't have you know, business uh, being conducted and then an hour later get sued because somebody went there for dinner and, and, and got sick. Right, Maria, this has been a frustration. Going back to the first CARES package, we tried to get real liability reform in that first package. And as you know, the Democrats through the trial lawyers have been blocking it every step of the way. Uh, and then they were trying to, uh, you know, literally ask for hundreds of billions of dollars to bail out failed states. And so last week you saw Mitch McConnell finally acknowledge that if we're not going to get liability reform, uh, there won't be any more. No, we're not. And that's no, 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 no. I'd prefer that nothing gets signed. I prefer. Do you guys have a problem with it? I mean, we're all in together. Right. And, uh, so there's a lot of us that have been hit really, really hard by this infodemic, really hard. That makes me included, all of you included. Man, I'm going to tell you, it is so hard for people right now, but it couldn't be at a better time because even when you don't have you give. And all of us together carry the other person across. I could tell you, uh, I haven't even called my mother straightforward, right? Because <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's, I don't even tell her anything anyway, but it's all about why don't you just, just leave it. What is, is just be quiet and stop. You know, you did what you did and, you know, you, I get that from friends too. Just leave it. And it's like, man, who's going to shut up? Tell me, are any of you going to shut up? Tell me. This is why I haven't even like called her, right? Because, you know, she was like, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you go and you're doing this and this is why you're in this predicament right now and 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 I'm talking like, you know, Christmas wise, being able to go visit, you know, and stuff like that. And it's like, I'm okay. I'd rather die on a righteous hill and be burned to a crisp than bend the knee. I've never done that. I have been maimed by a whole state's attorney general where he has filed everything you can think of to discredit, to cause me pain. And all I had to do was sign a damn paper and say, all right, after this event, I'll give you everything you need. I had nothing to hide. The bottom line is you do not tell me I need to know my place and you do not threaten me because I will die on that hill rather than let you violate and be allowed to perpetuate this. Like, okay, so McCain gave him the nod. Screw her. I mean, they were best friends. He was invited to his funeral. And he had Obama on speed dial. All these limp-wristed idiots hang out together. But one thing that I've tried to resonate even with my children 
is never, ever, ever, ever back down. Ever. Could you imagine if, like, let's take it to religion. Could you imagine if Jesus just was like, I'm not carrying this cross. I just, I'll just rather just sit here and, okay, I'll shut up. I won't talk anymore. We should never, ever, ever back down. Never, ever let anyone tell you what you are, how free you're allowed to be and how much your rights matter and how much your voice matters. Because your voice <laughs> is the depiction of your freedom. And that doesn't mean you could sit there and, you know, grab a soapbox. I'm saying your voice in regards to what happens. We dictate our economy. We dictate our laws. We dictate who speaks for us. We've done this exchange. In exchange for giving up our full rights to just have weapons lined on our door and shooting whoever comes because we feel like it, to become a more civilized society, we've said, all right, we're going to give authority because we allow it to sheriffs and police. And because all of us sitting in a room and talking about laws is not really <laughs> efficient when there's 300,000 people to a city, we can't all just cram into the door. We'll nominate someone to represent us. But we have given that right to them. We have every right to take it away. And right now, it's not about the left, the leftists that are insane, and the right that's pretending like their shit doesn't stink. They're the worst ones of them all because they've allowed this train wreck to happen. They've allowed all of this to perpetuate. It's not. It's about us sitting by idly. Idly. Idly sitting back while Lindsey Graham says like two nice things and then does nothing. Idly, while all these senators and Congress people tell you how great everything is and how, whoa, we're going to win this. We're going to do this. Don't make me have to subpoena you. And it's like you did nothing. But you had to see it to understand it. You had to see it. It had to happen this way so you can wake up. It had to be there. Paul Ryan with his smirk behind the president. Pelosi ripping papers. Like, come on. You sat there thinking, oh, he's just a chump. Do you know how many, how many emails I get from people telling me who I am or telling me how much of a chump my president is? That's because they don't know what's going on. They can't see it. They can't see how this is a movie. They can't see how this has happened before. Their minds can't apply the past to the future collectively. Back in the day, in, I don't know, the worst, do you know what the worst time in history was? With the explosion of the Krakatau volcano. Did you know that? What was it? Like 545, 546 AD, right? That's because there was like the equivalent of a nuclear winter. Everything went tits up across the planet because of that. So I want you to think of President Trump being elected as that volcano. Giving a nuclear winter to all these empowered private individuals that have decided to take control of every single human person on this planet. The only people they can't own are the ones that don't identify with the humankind. It's very important we make that distinction. Shadow, cattle, calf. These are things that are used interchangeably a lot. And for those of you that watch Rumors of War, you understand where I'm getting the calf. The calf. It's very important that you understand that.
people are smarter than that within the United States because even though they've demoralized us over five decades, we've learned how to overcome that. We've learned that the foundations of this nation are not on a movable ground. It's immobile. It's like the crust of the earth. It can shake, it can split, but it'll still be there either submerged or elevated. We feel that, we know that, we understand that. And when I say walk in faith and not sight, I mean it. Your faith is what terrifies them. Your faith in God is what terrifies them. Now, what will be happening this week, aside from Christmas, and it doesn't really feel like Christmas. Actually, I got, I got some packages from listeners. I've actually put them under the tree. I'm not even opening them um, until Christmas, so I can give myself some treat. But I want you to know, uh, other than Christmas, right, there's a lot happening. The 23rd is going to be interesting. Today is going to be very interesting. I want you guys to look at everything you see in your social media from now until, well, you'll know when. I want you to see it with the perspective of applying what happened in 1860 and 1864 to today. Think of the bloody wars and the fronts and the losses of life as battles between ideas. Because as humankind has evolved, right? You're not hanging people in the square anymore, right? And even lethal injection, you're like, eh, I don't know. I mean, some of you are like, yes, let's hang them by the toes. I want to watch them die. But most people are kind of like, look, we don't have the right to take a life, but we can put them in solitaire for, you know, solitary confinement forever so they can face whatever. We evolve. We're now more compassionate to animals. We're now more compassionate to various things, right? So obviously war has changed. We don't drop people, you know, on the seaside and they come out with guns ablazing. We don't march with drums and flags and meet each other and start shooting and putting, you know, the useless people in the front to take the bullets for us. You don't, we don't use humans as body bags anymore. It's very interesting. While we were talking about this, statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee was removed from the U.S. Capitol. Pretty interesting. I just saw that. History, <sighs> repeating itself again and again and again. If anything, today, when you see the media telling you what you need to know, ask yourself, what is it that you really need to know? Whatever your president's telling you. And if you look at his timeline, what is he telling you? Let's, let's look. What has he told us since this morning? Since this morning, which he got up quite early and started tweeting, right? Very early, actually. So. He was retweeting a lot from yesterday. But he's talking about the theft of the votes. He even tweeted out, oh my gosh, we need to watch this video. It's one of my favorites. Wait, hold on. Let's do this. This is from President-elect Maria Selderholm. Word of beak. Has a crow in the picture. Love it. You need to watch this. This is what your president's telling you. Let's just pay attention to this. I know I'm going over on my two hours, but we're going to have fun. 
Georgia does not show suitcases. If you see information published by an enemy of the people before our censors have a chance to erase it, our fact checkers will let you know that you didn't see what you just saw. Trust us. For example, if you saw this video from Georgia of poll workers being told to leave the room, and then this suitcase filled with ballots being pulled out from under a table, our fact checkers would gladly correct this misinformation by letting you know, and I quote, Fact check. Video from Georgia does not show suitcases filled with ballots suspiciously pulled from under a table. Poll watchers were not told to leave. As you can clearly see, you saw wrong, probably because you're mentally ill. So we corrected you and you're what? If you see information published by an enemy of the people. Do you see that? See, see what a joke it is. He's telling you. How about the plot to see to steal America? That's a pretty good one. Let's play that one. You should see it. It's a very good uh, clip. You know what? We'll stay here three hours. I don't care. I'll upload this on the Tory Says page. This is a really good one. I watch this. Um, it's pretty good. 2020 has been a year like no other. Everything we know, everything we trust, and everything we've come to rely on has changed. So how could we expect the U.S. election to be any different? Mainstream media are telling us the race is over. Biden won. Time to move on. Nothing to see here, folks. But in your gut, you know something's just not right. From the strange patterns on election night, to the weeks of suspense, to the reports of fraud that evaporate faster than Biden's memory. It just doesn't add up. Stay with me, and you'll see just what's going on behind the scenes in this election, and why the greatest threat we're facing right now is not an invisible enemy invading our bodies, but one that's invading our country, in our minds. Welcome to Man in America. I'm your host, Seth Holhouse. Let me ask you, how do you know what's happening in the world right now? How do you know what's going on in this country or even your city? I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume you probably turn to mainstream media, which includes social media. Perhaps you watch Tucker in the evenings or read New York Times Sunday morning or check Facebook on your lunch break. So how do you know what's going on in the U.S. election? What did you think on election night when historically red states and battleground states were stalled while blue states were immediately called for Biden? Or when Fox called Arizona with so many votes still out, of course, for Biden? And how about the late night ballot dumps that were somehow all for Biden? And the batches of pristine mail-in ballots also all for Biden? And then there were the burst water pipes and the power outages and the computer glitches and issues with Sharpie pins and lost USB drives that somehow all favored Biden. And then we have the hordes of dead voters, once again, all for Biden. The dead people really did vote for Biden. I fact-checked it. And what are the odds that all the last-minute changes to our election process and voting laws in the name of COVID also favored Biden? And how about all the counties with more votes than eligible voters, 
or where they got more mail-in ballots than they even sent out. In Pennsylvania, they sent 1.8 million mail-in ballots and got back 2.5 million. And last but not least, we've got Dominion, the voting system with ties to socialist Venezuela that was programmed to manipulate votes for Biden while sending our data to China, Iran, and Russia. And when the system crashed because of the Trump landslide, key battleground states simply decided to stop counting and head on home. When has this ever happened before in U.S. history? This is just the tip of the iceberg. Every one of these reports should be serious grounds for investigation. Thousands of poll workers, postal workers, election officials, and honest Americans, both Republican and Democrat, have come forward with photos, videos, and firsthand stories affirmed by sworn affidavits documenting massive voter fraud. Social media has been flooded with them, yet mainstream media keeps asking, where is the evidence? Once everyone is gone, coast is clear, they are going to pull ballots out from underneath a table. Watch this table. Do you see the gentleman in, in the red? So he just pulled one out. So wh what are these ballots doing there, separate from all the other ballots? And why are they only counting them whenever the place is cleared out with no witnesses? Where is the evidence? Uh, I'm here with Elliot right now at his wedding, and we were taking the trash out, and I wanted to show you guys what we found in the trash can at um, St. Anne's, which is a polling place. Donald Trump. Donald, Donald Trump. Trump. Donald, Donald Trump. Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Trump, Trump, and there's and there is there is more, there is, more ballots, in ballots trash inside that trash. But we will we will say we did find one Biden. Where's the evidence? Can you calculate how 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 much of a vote that accounted for for Biden and how much for Trump? Close to six hundred thousand. I think our our figures were about five hundred and seventy some odd thousand that uh, all those spikes represent over time for Biden. Correct. And how much for Trump? I think it was a little over thirty two hundred. <laughs> now hold on didn't they just drag us through a baseless four-year witch hunt into russian election interference over far less evidence and isn't it their job to be digging for evidence wouldn't nixon have gotten away with watergate if the media didn't dig for evidence not only aren't they digging for it right now but they're burying it in a giant game of whack-a-mole along with their comrades over at Twitter, Facebook, and Google. Of course, they had their fact checkers debunk everything first. These arbiters of truth who have more conflicts of interest than flavors of ice cream in Nancy Pelosi's freezer. <laughs> Even President Trump's tweets are so-called fact-checked and censored, and his press conferences are interrupted and cut off. Okay, here we are again in the unusual position of not only interrupting the President of the United States, but correcting the President of the United States. Think about what this means. The President of the United States of America is being censored by U.S. companies. This whole thing reeks of corruption. And not just corruption, but treason. It's such a joke that I'd be laughing if it wasn't so serious. But it is serious. Because let's assume for a moment that just a fraction of the fraud reports are true. If mainstream media and social media didn't let you see or even talk about them, how would you even know? Think about it. If our election was stolen, 
and our government was overthrown and yet they kept it all hidden, how would you know? If mainstream media can completely control public opinion and the flow of information, including from our president, does the truth even matter? What if I told you that every single one of our mainstream media, including Fox, is being used as a tool to manipulate public opinion and steer the outcome of the election? Perhaps a year ago, you might have called me a conspiracy theorist. But considering we've all been living in a twilight zone lately, you're probably starting to realize that anything's possible. Just try to wrap your head around this. How did the media so accurately predict the long delays in counting votes and the red mirage before the blue wave? And why did they spend months downplaying the risks of mail-in ballots while sowing the seeds that Trump would claim voter fraud and refuse to concede? Do they have a crystal ball? Why did Hillary Clinton tell Biden not to concede under any circumstances all the way back in the summer? You know, Joe Biden should not concede under any circumstances. Why did they spend the last four years using every possible tactic to undermine Trump's presidency in the most relentless smear campaign the world has ever seen? And why did every single mainstream media rush to coronate Biden and cement him into the public mind? Now do you understand why he told voters, I don't need you to get me elected? I don't need you to get me elected. It never mattered that he hid in his basement all summer. It never mattered that only five people turned out to his rallies. And it never mattered that he couldn't even string a sentence together. It never mattered that the majority of Americans chose President Trump on November 3rd. And it doesn't matter that their fraud is more obvious than the stains on Monica Lewinsky's dress. Because when you control every single channel of information, nothing else matters. Right now, big media, big tech, big government, and even celebrities are blanketing us with the narrative that Biden won while censoring all evidence of fraud and concealing the very real truth that our nation is facing its greatest threat since the American Revolution. Because as our founding fathers knew all too well, the moment we no longer have free speech and a free press to keep the government in check, we no longer have a democracy. I'm gonna level with you now. Anyone who has escaped communist China, Russia, Cuba, or North Korea can see the writing on the wall. In 1963, the communist goals to overthrow the United States were entered into congressional record. They stated, capture one or both of the political parties infiltrate the press, gain control of key positions in radio, TV, and motion pictures. After this election, it's pretty clear these goals have been achieved. And the more you look into it, the more you see that all roads lead to China, or more specifically, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. Guess who owns a massive chunk of Hollywood, including AMC theaters and legendary film studios? You got it, the CCP. Guess who pays millions of dollars to mainstream newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, to publish their propaganda? The CCP. And guess who's given the Biden family billions of dollars? Yes, the CCP. Now do you see why Biden is the media's darling? On the contrary, 
Who's been the biggest thorn in the CCP's side? Who stood up to their abusive trade policies and slapped them with billions of dollars in tariffs? Who dismantled their stranglehold on manufacturing and brought American factories and jobs back home? Who stopped the pillaging of U.S. intellectual property? Who put serious penalties in place for violating religious freedoms? And finally, who had the guts to call a spade a spade and rightfully point a finger at the CCP for concealing a virus that has crippled our entire world? President Trump. Now do you understand why they hate him so much? They've been coming after America, coming after you and I for decades. And their plan was basically complete. That is until President Trump got in their way. Right now, we're in a battle for our Republic. The enemy is already inside the gates. Even those we thought we could trust have turned on us. They're not fighting with guns and bombs, no, but with words, ideas, and narratives. Because what they're fighting for are our minds. In 1956, communist leader Khrushchev said, we will take America without firing a shot. We do not have to invade the US. We will destroy you from within. I hope you can see now that the invisible enemy is communism. And the most deadly virus is the Chinese Communist Party. It sneaks into a country through the vices of corrupt politicians, businessmen, and people of power and influence. It rips through cities and towns, bodies and minds, leaving no stone unturned, no soul untouched, and a trail of death and destruction in its wake. It sows its seeds by convincing us that lies are truth, evil is good, and hatred is love, that division is unity, and that our enemies are each other. Man versus woman, rich versus poor, black versus white, left versus right. It takes root when we feel helpless, afraid, and alone. It erases our history and slanders our forefathers and teaches our children to hate themselves, their families, and their country. It ridicules our beliefs, undermines our values, and attacks our way of life. It even demands that we kneel down in shame. But we will not be ashamed. We can't pull the wool over our eyes anymore because we know who we are. We fought to escape tyranny. We bled to end slavery. We revere the brave men who died to secure our freedom. We welcome people of all races and religions. We love our neighbors. We help the poor. We cherish our families. We work hard for what we have. We unite in times of hardship. We know good from evil and truth from lies. And we know that our rights don't come from the government, but from God. And we will fight to the death to protect those rights. The time ahead is critical. We, the people, need to call upon our president 
to defend us from enemies, foreign and domestic, and uphold his oath. For the time being, we still have free press and free speech at our fingertips. But if we don't grab hold of them now, we'll lose them forever. Independent, honest media companies like OAN, Newsmax, and the Epoch Times will guide us out of the darkness. No. The mainstream media will only drag us further down. It's time to stop giving them our money, our attention, and our minds. Unlike their Facebook pages, unsubscribe from their emails, unfollow them on Twitter, delete their apps, and stop visiting their websites. Support the countless patriots who've gone through hell and high water to get this information to you. Like their content, subscribe to their channels, share their videos, spread their message. Stop using Google search. Google is censoring every result and robbing you of your right to know the facts. Start using DuckDuckGo and compare them. You'll be shocked. Get off Twitter and Facebook and switch to Parler. Join millions of patriots who have already turned their backs on these toxic companies who dare silence our voices. Join the millions of patriots who are standing up and rallying across the country, demanding justice and rejecting communism. Our enemies snuck in during the night and tried to use the media to lull us to sleep while they stole our country. But instead, they awoke the sleeping giant. We see them for who they are now. And they'll never be able to fool us again. They tried to trigger a great reset, but instead, they triggered a great awakening. We will not look back five years from now and tell our children that we did nothing as our nation was stolen. We will tell them that we fought for and won our freedom just like our forefathers in 1776. America is the last bastion of freedom in the world. We are the only remaining threat to the CCP virus. We fall, the world will fall, but we will not fall. It's time to stand with our founding fathers and to invoke the power of we the people and the power of God. We are the patriots. Join us. Now that was a good video, but I'll tell you something from what I've seen. And this is a lesson that we should all take carefully. Uh, one thing that I've said from the minute I've stepped out into the public sphere with my name and my face is don't trust anybody to give you the skinny on what's going on. Not even me. The only person you should be listening to is your president. The only media ever that you should be supporting for, you know, putting together content for you are the ones that do not have any interests. When I went to Washington, D.C., we went down there, the whole team aggregated, 
in all of us still have things to do. We don't have banks and products and anything to pay our way there. But the people and whatever we do, you know, on the side to make money while we're battling for this country. A bunch of us got together. When Millie Weaver shows you what we came down with, you're going to be like, why are we still here? What you need to understand is if you're not in control of the content by supporting the content, you cannot trust the content ever. So when I see all these nice keywords, but talking about a CCP virus, neglecting to state that we created the CCP or promoting outlets that we know are not supporting our press. I can sit here and it's not time yet to give you emails, texts, audio recordings of those that were just thumped as great patriots saying, well, he should secede and we should fight the Biden administration. Huh. Faces and names and people that were just shown as patriotic to love and adore without pointing specific fingers. So I urge you to take everything you see with a grain of salt and only listen to your president. That video was 80% fabulous, 20% sequestration. And what do I mean by that? When we arrived, sequestration began. What does that mean? If you bottleneck information, bottleneck a narrative, you are therefore in control and can have power. This is the problem. There's always that strive to have that power and the control. And again, even those that are good make that mistake. Even those that seem to be fighting the righteous fight fail because they are only human and error is human. They seek to put themselves above and get correct footing. I remember I was asked a few times, you know, oh, well, you just want to work in D.C. Fuck no, I don't. I want to continue doing what I love to do, and that's it. And I want to make sure that the future's there. Maybe you're looking for a job there, but I sure as hell am not. That's the thing. There's always a why, an economic motivator, always. And I've been very transparent that I was humbled beyond anything about a year ago, well, exactly a year ago and 10, 15 days ago. I was humbled beyond belief. And that is where I realized that the more I try to control the more I try to make plans, the more I try to do it the normal way that we've been taught, <laughs> the more I will come up to resistance. And up until then, last year, things were fine. I was still doing what I needed to do. But it was at a price. See, I remember there were two times that I met Stephen Hawkins. The first time, I wasn't expected. 
he was apparently hosting a party and I kind of turned up and he was like, why are you here? I don't know. I just came to see you. I knew you'd be here kind of thing. The second time though, observing him, I noticed that his mind was so genius that his body couldn't keep up. It's a give and take balance when you tip the scales to one side too much. Balance is key for all of us. Balance. And how do we have balance? By having repercussions, by having consequences for every action. So how do you avoid being in the same position again for five, 10 years later? How do you avoid being in the same position? Obviously, you can see it coming. But again, we had the Holocaust, kind of the same thing here. Instead, they're not killing people. They're labeling them, right? How do we do that? By realizing that being comfortable isn't your goal here. Back in the day, we used to go hunting for our food and 10 people would go out and one would come back. <laughs> we used to not know what the day would bring. As we got more comfortable, we forfeited more of our ability to do things. I mean, think about it. Now we wear watches on our wrists that tell us how many steps we take. Could you imagine 100 years ago only taking 600, like that actually happened to, I took 600 steps. One day when I was writing something, I took 600 steps that day. That's it. Could you imagine 100 years ago only taking 600 steps? It's not so, it is laziness, but it's being comfortable. See, one thing people like, and that's out of preservation, is being comfortable, not holding people accountable, not realizing the power they have. So while that video was extremely inspirational, I beg to differ only on the fact that this infodemic is the problem. And the fact that, again, we're told to be made comfortable in other areas, to focus on those areas. No. What we have to do is focus on ourselves. Focus on ourselves. If you are in tune with your gut, nothing gets by you. Situational awareness. <laughs> you know how many texts I would get from Patrick Berge? FYSA, for your situational awareness, right? How many of you have situa situational awareness right now? It's way more than what you had last month, way more than three months ago, way more than a year ago, definitely more than four years ago. You understand the power that you have right now. Do not forget that. We don't need to be Eisenhower taking people to go see dead bodies or where they cremated or burned or turned people into dust. We need to remember just how powerful we are. And that man is indeed the thorn on all of their sides. For your situational awareness, you must be aware that you are a giant. You are the giant in the United States of America. They are not. And giants never yield. And Americans 
roar. They don't squeal. So just to be clear, while something sounds amazing, you can always catch the catch. I hope watching that incredible compilation, you realize the key things you wanted to hear were there. But what was it that you didn't pay attention to that now you can't? Watch it with fresh eyes. Watch it with the eyes of scrutinizing for propaganda. Always. Either that be good or bad. See, this is where me and Patrick Berge always bumped heads. <laughs> we could use the shadow net and we could use this for good. It's like we shouldn't be using it at all. At all. You should be aware of everything you read, everything you hear, and everything that is being told to you. That's what you should be doing. And you should just be listening to your president because he tells you everything you need to know. We've already won. It's already over. But in order to have that victory, you have to fight for it. You have to go forward with it. And like that video said, this is something that we've been saying for a while. It doesn't matter how much fraud you see. It's never going to be enough because they didn't need your votes. The, you didn't even need to come out. Nobody cares. They were going to steal it. That was the plan. They were going to steal it. And now we're doing everything there is to expose them. This is why it's happening this way. So going forward, tomorrow we'll talk news. But I want you to understand, we've already won. The battles that you are seeing now are just being played out for you to understand just how big of a win this is. And as always, here's that little riddle. And all you have to do is look at a couple pictures. But I think it was, um, I think it was Elon Musk that... Um, had that. I wonder if he still has it. Let me check before I send you over there. Let's see if Elon still has it there. Yeah. You should check out his banner on Twitter. Like I've said, Mars is the past and Venus is the future. Now, that will make sense in the coming weeks. But until then, you can see his Twitter headline and make sense of it. So that was a three-hour show today. I felt like I wanted to spend some more time, but we'll leave it at that for now. I'll see you guys tomorrow, same time, same place. God bless. God bless everyone. Warning to the people, the good and the evil. This is war. To the soldier, the civilian, the martyr, the victim. Hey!